I am Karan Bhatia, and welcome to the Ask the Experts podcast. Today, I'm breaking down the historic Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz heavyweight fight. I'll give you my analysis, along with the interviews I've conducted with experts in the field who bring their own unique perspective to this unexpected and unforgettable event. But before that, let's quickly look back at what transpired on June 1st, 2019 in Madison Square Garden. Joshua is the total package. I mean, almost a cartoon character. This is how you would draw up the heavyweight champion if you were dreaming it up. He's 29 years old, six foot six, chiseled at just under 248 pounds. Andy Ruiz Jr. is not the body beautiful, 6'2", 268. And again, a significant athletic advantage and a significant reach advantage as well for the heavyweight champion, Anthony Joshua. Ruiz mixes it up. Good over. More than two minutes to go in this round. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. 21 knockouts in 21 wins for Anthony Joshua. Ruiz comes to fire back, and Joshua's hurt. Oh, the goes down. Andy Ruiz caught him with a sharp left hook. Joshua's hurt. But what an answer by Ruiz. There is 40-plus seconds left in this round. These are the, right. mo- the most important 40 seconds of Andy Ruiz's career. He has a hurt champion in front of him. Rocks. Joshua is hurt. He's staggered. And he goes down again. That's a knockdown. Joshua's wow. been down twice. Joshua looks gassed. Four. Mouthpiece came flying Five. out of his mouth. Joshua wow. looks so tired. I think he wants out. That's it. My name is Karan Bhatia, and we are going to break down the heavyweight fight for the ages. Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. It was the dramatic, historic upset. So what exactly happened on June 1st? Somehow, Andy Ruiz got up from the canvas, and it deserves to be dissected, and we have just the people to do it. I have assembled an incredible group of guests. I'll be speaking with Thomas Hauser. He is one of the preeminent boxing authors of our time. I'll be talking to Mike Coppinger of The Athletic. I'll be chatting with Kella Fasana of The New Yorker. I interviewed the ringside doctor who actually worked the fight. That and many more people who were there and people well-known in boxing circles. But before that, let's get to the fight. There's a saying in boxing, speed kills. In other words, the guy with the fast hands is dangerous forget everything else, that is what matters. Before this fight, Anthony Joshua was the heavyweight champion. He was undefeated, he was charismatic, he was knocking everyone out. And he was supposed to fight Jarrell Big Baby Miller. This was gonna be Joshua's first fight outside of the UK. He was fighting in Madison Square Garden in America and Big Baby Miller tested positive for PED. So they wanted to bring in another opponent. They wanted someone American because this fight was in America and they found someone who was actually Mexican-American in Andy Ruiz and he fought in Mexican style, which definitely surprised Anthony Joshua and eventually led to the upset, which we'll get into. No one gave Ruiz a chance. And a huge part of that is because the way he looks. He doesn't look like a fighter. He has a big belly. It's a little sloppy looking. And Anthony Joshua, in comparison, is six foot six. He's chiseled like a statue. Ruiz was listed at six foot two. I stood next to him at the pre-fight events, at the weigh-in. He looked closer to 5'11 to me. It was almost comical at these events to see these two guys standing next to each other. They didn't look like they should be fighting. But since the fight, 
Training footage has emerged of Ruiz. He's a hard worker. He can move like a big man, and obviously he showed you what he could do on June 1st. So why does he look the way he does if he trains that hard? It could be genetics. The most likely reason is what he said. He eats Snickers and steak before every fight. So who knows exactly what his diet is. The bigger question is why he has not been sponsored by Snickers yet. We need to figure that out. So in case you missed the fight, this is what happened. Round three, it started off the way we expect it to go. That's something the great Emmanuel Stewart used to say. Joshua lands a combination, lands a left hook, drops Ruiz. This is what we all thought would happen. But what happened next? is the opposite of what anyone could have imagined. Ruiz took a second, he got up, and he fought back. He took another huge right hand from Joshua, he ate it and moved forward, and he landed a combination of his own and landed a massive left hook to the temple of Joshua, which took out Joshua's equilibrium, caused him to go down. It was absolutely shocking. Everyone in the arena, including myself, our jaws were dropped to the floor. Now, there was a little bit of thought, hey, is this a fluke? Did this actually just happen? Well, then Ruiz did not let up. And with 40 seconds left in the round, you heard Sergio Mora say, this is the most important 40 seconds of Andy Ruiz's career. I'll go a step further and say it was the most important 40 seconds of his life. And I think he genuinely capitalized on that. He landed another flurry to Joshua's head and knocked him down again for the second time in that third round. And this is where everyone in the arena is looking at each other saying, wow, is Andy Ruiz really going to win this fight and be the new heavyweight champion? Fast forward to the seventh round. Ruiz knocks down Joshua for a third time. Joshua gets up. He kind of smiles at Ruiz. It was weird. He may have had a concussion. It was odd behavior. Ruiz comes in again, lands another combination. Joshua goes down for the fourth time. This time he loses his mouthpiece. He gets up. He turns his back to the ref. He goes to his corner and he turns around to the ref. The ref says, are you okay? Joshua says yes, but his body language doesn't look good. He looks disinterested. He almost looks like he doesn't want to be there. And the referee stops the fight. And we have Andy Ruiz as our new heavyweight champion. We'll get into what exactly this upset means, where its place is in history. We have a lot of good guests to talk about that. The one thing I want to say before that is that there was people on Twitter, prominent sports personalities saying, oh, this is a disgrace, um, no more Wilder Joshua. And I actually completely disagree. The story here is not anything like this was a disgrace or Joshua didn't train hard enough or took this guy lightly, even though those things may be true. What the story is here is that Andy Ruiz was on the canvas and he decided to get up, impose his will on Anthony Joshua, and he deserves 1,000% of the credit for that. And Wilder Joshua could still happen, but there's now a fourth player in that top realm of heavyweights, of elite heavyweights. You have Deontay Wilder, you have Tyson Fury, you have Anthony Joshua, and now you have Andy Ruiz. Any one of those guys fighting each other would be a great matchup. You cannot disqualify Andy Ruiz. You cannot take anything away from him just because he has an imperfect body. The way he looks doesn't take away from the fact that he had 105 amateur wins and only five losses. His body doesn't disqualify him from having a nearly undefeated record. He had one very close fight against Joseph Parker, which he lost in Parker's hometown. That was a razor thin decision and many people thought Ruiz won that fight. Nothing that Andy Ruiz has accomplished, including what happened on June 1st, is erased by the fact that he is not seemingly in shape. 
okay by the way he looks. To me, it's pretty simple, and it goes back to another upset we had many years ago. It was at a much lower level, a much smaller scale event, but James Kirkland at the time was undefeated, and he took on Nobuhiro Ishida from Japan, who was virtually unknown in America. And the great Jim Lampley was calling that fight. Nobuhiro Ishida knocked down Kirkland three times and eventually took him out all in the first round. And Jim Lampley said, Kirkland's getting badly out-techniqued by Nobuhiro Ishida, who looks utterly fearless. And this isn't the profile that most Kirkland opponents possess. And it is the exact same thing on June 1st. Joshua got out-techniqued by Ruiz, and this isn't consistent with the profile of many of Joshua's opponents. Obviously, the great Vladimir Klitschko was not of that profile either. He had a great life-and-death fight with Anthony Joshua. Bottom line, Ruiz has been fighting since he was a kid, and it was that muscle memory that got him this win. You go back to what you know when you're in trouble. Anthony Joshua didn't start fighting until he was 18. He may not have experienced the same type of adversity. He may not have had to come back from situations like this enough of the time. He did it against Klitschko, but not, but maybe not in the past. Maybe he hasn't done it enough. And let's talk about matchups. I actually think Wilder versus Joshua sometime in the future is more likely to happen, and I'll tell you why. Joshua no longer has that O next to his name. There may be less pride involved. And now you have Deontay Wilder going against Tyson Fury early next year. That's a close fight that we don't know how it will end. Last time around, Wilder landed a massive right hand in the 12th round. Fury was down for 9.9 .9 seconds. He barely got up, and that fight was a draw. But Wilder could certainly lose that too. And even if he doesn't, the dynamics have shifted, and it is more likely that these big fights can get made, especially depending on what happens with that Wilder-Fury fight. Joshua and Ruiz are going to rematch most likely in November of this year. That is going to be a massive event. And I actually think Joshua can come back stronger from this. I think he can fight more defensively. He really opened up in that third round after knocking down Ruiz. And he may want to take a more tactical, defensive approach. Other heavyweight champions have done this after losing, like Vladimir Klitschko, Lennox Lewis, and others. It really is a great time for the sport. It's a great time in the heavyweight division. Wilder versus Fury will be for the WBC belt, which Wilder holds, the lineal championship, which Tyson Fury holds. Ruiz now holds the other three belts. Eventually, if the winners of these two fights fight, it would be for all four heavyweight belts and the lineal championship. That would be the first time that that has happened in the modern four belt era. Like I said, it is a great time in heavyweight boxing and boxing in general. And the fight that happened on June 1st between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz deserves to be dissected. We need to break it down. We need to talk to the experts because it was one of the most historic and crazy nights of boxing that we've ever had. And I have assembled the team to discuss it with. First up, I'll have Thomas Hauser. Like I said, he is the preeminent boxing author. He's written The Black Lights. He's written about Muhammad Ali. You've heard his name. You've seen his writing. And now you're going to get a chance to hear his take on what happened between Joshua and Ruiz. Next, I have Mike Coppinger. He has been breaking all the boxing news, and he's now working at The Athletic. After that, I'll be speaking to Kella Fasana. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and a boxing historian who has a great take on this fight and this event. Then I'll be speaking to Dr. Nitin Sethi. He was the ringside physician for this fight, and he has a very unique perspective on boxing in general and how to make the sport safer. I'll be talking to Evan Rakowski. He is of the Fistianados podcast. He breaks down the business aspect of this. How does this upset uh, change the subscriber numbers for The Zone? What's going to happen? I'll be chatting with Dave Harmon. He was the producer for The Zone. He was in the TV truck. How do you cover a big fight like this for the audience? What do you do differently? We're going to find that out. 
I'll be talking to Dan Canobio. He's an announcer and works for CompuBox. They track statistics. It turns out Joshua was trending to be more defensive. He was throwing less power punches in his last 10 fights. How did that affect him against Andy Ruiz? We'll talk to Dan about that. I'll be speaking with Ed Maholland. He was the official ringside photographer for the fight. He was right up against the ropes. He's taken photos at some of the biggest fights of all time. He photographed Gotti Ward. Where does he place Josh Ruiz in everything that he's covered? I'll be talking to Lee Groves. If you know who Lee Groves is, he is an absolute boxing encyclopedia. He can break it down almost better than anyone else. And he's gonna give us everything to think about in terms of how we place this fight in history. And I'll be talking to Corey Erdman. He was in the arena as well. He's gonna give us his take of what it was like to be there. So without further ado, let's get to the first guest. I am Karin Bhatia and let's ask the experts. I am speaking to Thomas Hauser. He is one of the most accomplished authors and historians in boxing. He wrote The Black Lights. He's written numerous books about Muhammad Ali. And he's nice enough to give us some time and give us some insight looking back at the big heavyweight fight, Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. Thomas, before we get into the fight itself, I was just wondering your perception and your feeling about Anthony Joshua. Did you think that he was one of these once in a generation type heavyweights like a Muhammad Ali or a Mike Tyson? You know, he's charismatic. He has the the big smile on his face. He's always talking with people. He's friendly and he's obviously a hard worker and was undefeated before this fight. Did you see him as as one of those type of once in a generation heavyweights? Anthony Joshua was marketed as a rock star. He has a lot of charisma. Uh, as best I can tell, he's a very nice man. He's a good fighter, but he was never Godzilla. You know, you have to put this upset in context. Is it an upset? Absolutely. But it's not Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas, because Mike Tyson was the heavyweight champion of the world. It's not Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champion of the world. After those fights occurred, you had a new heavyweight champion. Andy Ruiz beat Anthony Joshua, and people are saying, well, now maybe he's the number three heavyweight behind Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury, both of whom would be favored over Andy. And Anthony Joshua would probably will be favored over Andy if they fight again. So it was a huge upset. Obviously, it meant a great deal in the United Kingdom, where Joshua was enormously popular. But you have to keep it in context. Uh, this was not a changing of the guard. This was one of three men who claimed the heavyweight crown getting beaten. In that third round, uh, Joshua knocks down Ruiz. That's what most of us thought would happen. What most of us didn't think would happen is Ruiz, he actually took his time, he took a second, and then he got up, and he ended up landing a big left hook behind Joshua's ear, knocked off his equilibrium, knocked him down quickly, and then knocked him down again in that round. My question is, in a big fight scenario like that, have you ever seen something like that where a guy goes down and so quickly gets up and and knocks down his opponent in a big scenario. Well, didn't uh, Vladimir Klitschko come back from a knockdown and then knock Anthony Joshua down? 
He did, a round later, yeah. Wasn't that the scenario of that fight? And Tony Ayala getting knocked down, getting yeah. up and coming in for the kill immediately afterwards. Uh, it was a good punch by Joshua. And what people tend to forget was after he knocked him down, he whacked Ruiz with another good right hand right after that. But it was a two-punch combination that knocked him down, if I saw it correctly. He hit him with a right uppercut, then the left hook put Ruiz down. Ruiz got up, but, but the, Ruiz was not stunned. He might have been a little shaken, but he had his faculties about him the whole time. And he takes a good punch. When that seventh round happened and the, you know, Ruiz knocked down Joshua twice, the referee waved off the fight. I just, I was just curious to your thoughts on this stoppage. Did you think it was at all early? The referee asked Joshua if he was okay. Joshua said he was, but the referee didn't seem to like his body language. I, I just wanted to know, A, did you think it was a fair stoppage? And also just the psychology now that, that will go into Anthony Joshua. He's lost his undefeated record and, and moving forward, what that's, what you think that, that how that's going to affect him uh, moving forward. First, I don't think it was a premature stoppage. Mike Griffin is a very good referee. Anthony was not competitive anymore. His own promoter, Eddie Hearn, says it was a good stoppage. What he did was save Joshua from taking quite a bit of unnecessary punishment by stopping it at that point in time. In terms of going forward, we don't know. You know, there are fighters like Evander Holyfield uh, who got knocked out and it didn't change them. You know, they come back stronger than ever. Uh, Joe Lewis was knocked out by Max Schmeling the first time they fought. We all know what happened the second time around there. And then there are other fighters who never recover from it. The, take somebody like Michael Grant, who was knocked down by Andrew Galata, actually, got up, survived that fight because Galata quit before Michael could. But Michael was never the same fighter again. Uh, he, he got whacked out by Lennox Lewis, became easier and easier to knock him down. So you really don't know. But you know, these people who are writing, you know, Anthony Joshua off because he lost one fight. That's ridiculous. That doesn't happen in other sports. You know, I remember a fighter who got knocked out by a journeyman named Ross Purity. Then he got knocked out by a glorified club fighter named Corey Sanders. And then after that, he got knocked out by Lehman Brewster. That's three bad knockouts. And that guy was Vladimir Klitschko, who came back to have a pretty good championship reign after that. So let's not write Anthony Joshua off prematurely. Let's see what he does going forward. And just looking ahead, the Joshua Ruiz rematch will most likely happen this fall. We know Wilder Fury 2 will most likely happen early next year. There's now four players, main players in this in this space instead of three. And if one day the winners of each of those two fights come together, it would be for all four of the major belts plus the lineal championship. So my question for you is, in a scenario uh, of looking ahead, who do you think, when the dust settles, who do you think will come out on top in terms of those four guys as the heavyweight of this generation? Okay, first, I think you're optimistic in thinking that all these fights are going to happen. Joshua Ruiz will probably happen in the fall, but we don't know for sure that it will. And yes, there has been talk that Wilder and Fury has been signed, but we don't know 
that that will happen, and then we don't know if the two winners will fight each other because you have the same problems going forward that you had before in making those fights. And now that Joshua has lost, there'll be a lot of talk from the Wilder or Fury side. Well, you don't have the same negotiating leverage. We're going to give you less. So I don't know that that's going to happen. Right now, we don't have a heavyweight champion, or we have three of them, which is a little like having three kings of England. My feeling is if you fought a round robin, which is the best way to really do this, if you were going to say if each of these four guys, because you have to put Ruiz in the mix now, if each of these guys fought the other three, my sense is that Deontay Wilder would finish in first place. Deontay is a very flawed fighter, as we know, but he has learned how to use his height and reach very well to protect his chin. He can whack, and my sense is that right now Deontay is the best fighter, best heavyweight in the world, but he's got to prove it in the ring whether or not he will choose to and have the opportunity to prove himself in the ring remains to be seen. And just to wrap it up, looking back at Joshua Ruiz, you know, you, you mentioned the other upsets in boxing history and where you think this ranks. Just in terms of the the shock value of it all, you know, Ruiz was a late opponent. Um, he replaced big baby Miller and he obviously has the body type that he does, which made it seem visually even that it would be even more of a challenge for him to do that just for the shock value of it. And, and the fact that it was such an interesting fight that got such mainstream attention. Um, I just was curious, all the fights that you've covered in your time, where do you, where do you rate it in terms of the shock value and the, the mainstream attention being given to it? Hard to say, you know, obviously Mike Tyson losing to Buster Douglas had much greater shock value. Uh, there, there are other fights all along the way, and then you have to ask yourself, well, you know, are we only looking at major fights where there have been upsets, or are we looking at lesser-known fighters? Uh, even something as basic as Ray Leonard beating Marvin Hagler was a shock to a lot of people. Uh, one, of the, one of the few good things, actually, there aren't many, but one of the few good things about mismatches is that occasionally we're wrong and the sacrificial lamb rises up and slays the butcher, and that's what happened here. So it's enough to say it's a huge upset, but you know people are fickle. The same people who a couple of weeks ago were saying this is a terrible mismatch, this is awful, they're saying, oh, you know, Joshua shouldn't fight Ruiz again, the same thing will happen. You know, that's, that's, I mean... Yeah, that, that, get over it. You know, it, it's a fist fight. People can lose. Bob Arum is running around saying, well, you know, this is terrible if they fight again. There's no way Joshua can beat Ruiz. You know, Bob, Bob Arum was, you know, so he's very smart. I don't mean to say he's not smart. He's a brilliant man. But let's not forget Bob Arum released Andy Ruiz from a promotional contract last year. So yeah, is, it, is it a big upset? Yes. Was it a fun fight? Yes. To me, the first danger sign for Joshua in that fight wasn't the third round when he got knocked down. It was the first two rounds of that fight when he did absolutely nothing and Ruiz was actually moving forward and pushing Anthony Joshua back behind not very much. And Anthony can't fight going backwards. Very few heavyweights can. So if, if I'm Joshua, 
before I even look at the third round of that fight, I look at the first two rounds and I ask myself, why was I so ineffectual in those first two rounds? You got to solve that riddle before you move to the next one. That's that's very interesting. I don't think many people were talking about the first two rounds. And I do think that Joshua will have to go back and try to change his style a little, a little bit. He, he's been trending from going from power punches to working the jab more. And he probably has to do that a little bit more, be more defensive and do that for the rematch. Other heavyweights have done that in the past and made that switch. We will see what happens. Thomas Hauser, thank you so much for giving your expertise and placing this fight in history. Thanks so much. Thank you. The great Thomas Hauser giving us his take and perspective on Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. Interesting to note that he believes Deontay Wilder will actually come out on top when all is said and done in the heavyweight division in this era. All right, up next, I have Mike Coppinger, a.k.a. Sources. You've seen him breaking news on Twitter, and now he's writing for The Athletic. We're going to get his perspective right now. Mike, we just had a historic fight between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz. It was a crazy upset. What are your initial impressions? Just one of the most surreal moments I've ever experienced live at a fight. Just, I mean, everyone, including myself, thought knew that Andy Ruiz was good. He wasn't some guy picked off the street, even though he was a very replacement. We knew he was good, but no one I knew gave him any much of a chance, let alone pick him to bring the upset. And to see such a titan of the sport like Anthony Joshua toppled like that in such dramatic fashion, um, it was just like it, we couldn't believe our eyes. People were jumping up and down. Everyone's mouth was aghast. And, you know, one of the craziest moments I've ever experienced. Before the fight happened, we all looked at Andy Ruiz. We looked at his body type. We didn't really look at his body of work. We didn't look at the 105 amateur wins. We didn't look at the nearly undefeated record. We didn't take into account the hand speed that he had. Before the fight, what did you think? Did you think Ruiz had a chance? Not at all. I, I thought Joshua would knock him out mid-rounds. I knew Andy Ruiz you know, had certain skills like fast hands and a good combination puncher. And I knew he was tough. But I think all of us, at least myself, when we saw Anthony Joshua drop Andy Ruiz with that hellacious left hook in round three, we thought, all right, well, this is going exactly as planned. <laughs> and, you know, just, uh, it took only a minute for Andy Ruiz to prove that he wasn't there to be, to just be walked over, dropped Joshua twice, and the rest is history. There were reports that Anthony Joshua had a panic attack before the fight, something he's denied. But every single one of his fights was in the UK. This time he was in a vastly different time zone. His schedule was different. He may have been out of his element. Do those type of things play a factor into what happened? Or was it simply that Andy Ruiz came to win the heavyweight championship and he wouldn't take no for an answer? We'll definitely know better about that when we see the rematch. Whether it's, you know, Anthony Ruiz is simply just an underrated fighter, if Joshua is an overrated fighter, a little bit of both, possibly. I don't really buy the pressure aspect as far as panic attacks go. Sure, it is a lot harder fighting away from home and having to adjust the new media demands and, like you said, a different time zone. But we're talking about a guy here who's headlines outdoor stadiums like. Wembley Stadium and places in Cardiff at the Millennial, Millennium Stadium in front of 90,000 outdoors. I, I just don't under, see him having being a moment being too big for Anthony Joshua. I think Andrew Ruiz, let's not forget, punch placement played a big factor in this fight. Ruiz hit Joshua 
um, in the temple right behind the left ear. That's an equilibrium shot that can really mess up your balance for the remainder of the fight. We've seen it before. In the seventh round, Andy Ruiz dropped Anthony Joshua, as we know. Joshua went down. He gets up. He kind of smiles at Ruiz. And then Joshua gets dropped again by Ruiz. This time, his mouthpiece comes flying out. He turns his back to the referee. His body language wasn't good in terms of someone who wants to keep fighting. Did Joshua quit there? And was it a good stoppage? Just take us through the end of the fight. Definitely a great stoppage because after that second knockdown, Joshua had his, both his arms draped over the ropes. He was looking at his corner. He clearly had no desire to continue. And you see him looking over, looking over at his corner, man. He just, he wanted out for sure. I don't want to say he quit because these guys are punching each other in the head. And Joshua, I don't know how hurt he was, if he's concussed. So it's a dangerous sport. So if anyone thinks they can't continue, that's fine with me. I definitely did not think he had any problem with the stoppage. I thought he was kind of like feigning outrage, safe face. And... I know everyone's been critical of his demeanor and attitude following the stoppage, but you know he's probably embarrassed. He's a guy who was, was expect this is, was his you know big U.S. debut. He wasn't expected to have any trouble. He just you know he's this Adonis that gets knocked out by this unassuming you know uh, fighter with a not the most impressive physique, obviously, and I think he's embarrassed for sure. When you look at this fight in terms of the massive upset that it was, the names Tyson Douglas come up, Lewis Rockman come up, where do you rank this fight in terms of being an upset? Definitely can't say it approaches Tyson Douglas, which I still consider the greatest upset in sports history. Douglas was a 42-1 underdog, and Mike Tyson was Mike Tyson. No one ever thought Anthony Joshua was invincible. We've seen him hurt in fights against Alexander Povetkin, and even against Dillian White, um, we we knew that he had problems with his chin. We knew he had defensive lapses, if he has defense at all. I have to beckon up on the cards. So, you know, these are vulnerable heavyweights we're talking about here. But it is a shock. It is the biggest upset since Rockman Lewis, at least, because Anthony Joshua, you know, this Olympic gold medalist, undefeated through 20-plus heavyweight fights, had some big wins. I, I see a lot of revision revisionist history now acting like Joshua didn't have a resume. That's, that's a lie. He beat Joseph Parker soundly, beat Dillian White, rose off the canvas to knock out Vladimir Klitschko, a future Hall of Famer, even if it was when Klitschko was past his prime at age 40. And Andy Ruiz came to fight, and I, I'm really excited for this rematch. This rematch instantly becomes a super fight. There will be a rematch for the fight. As we know, Anthony Joshua and his promoter, Eddie Hearn, have triggered the rematch clause in their contract. In terms of that rematch, how do you think that fight will play out, and where do you think that fight will be? I'd be, I'd be a little surprised if the rematch wasn't in the U.K. I think it makes all the sense in the world. Joshua came to the U.S. He's a big star in the U.K. Have, have him do it there at Wembley Stadium, sell out the place, and... I'm going to go with Joshua in the rematch. He's not going to take Ruiz lightly again. I don't think Ruiz is that much better than I thought he was. I, I, I knew he was good. I, think he's, I still think he's good. And I think Joshua you know, is going to get the job done next time. And if he doesn't, then Andy Ruiz is, you know, this, he's a star. And he's a real changing of the guard at heavyweight. That is for sure. Mike Coppinger, he's got his finger on the pulse of boxing. Thank you so much for the time, Mike. Thanks a lot, man. Interesting to note there that Mike is picking Joshua in the rematch, despite what happened on June 1st. 
All right, moving on. Next, we have Kella Fasana. He is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's a boxing historian, and he was a former correspondent on The Fight Game with Jim Lampley. Let's get Kellefa's take on what happened between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz. Kellefa, thank you so much for joining me. Before the fight, there wasn't anyone really picking Andy Ruiz to win, and not many people picking him to be competitive. Now, he did have the 105 amateur wins. He had a virtually undefeated record. He had one very close loss to Joseph Parker. Why weren't people giving him a chance? Was it the way he looks, the optics of it, with his imperfect body? Well, it's it's you know after the fact, everyone is is a genius about these things, and everyone says they saw it coming. I mean, obviously Vegas made him a pretty significant underdog. I think it was he was it was what he was about plus a thousand, and and Anthony Joshua was about minus two thousand or something. Um, so yeah, obviously he was certainly an underdog, but there were there were kind of two distinct ways people were looking at this fight going into it, right? Certainly, there were these pictures from the face-off that went kind of viral where it looked like Anthony Joshua was facing off against some security guard they pulled out of the audience. And so a lot of fans, even serious boxing fans who saw that, couldn't help but think viscerally, this short, not particularly muscle-toned guy is going to get smashed. Um, Then on the other hand... You know, if you were a, a little more serious and you looked at the records, um, you know, you, you looked at his technique and his hand speed and his upper body movement and that he, he was really close with um, when he fought with Joseph Parker his last time out. He knocks out, uh, was it Dimitrenko, I think, um, Ruiz did. And so you think, oh, he's pretty good. And Joshua is kind of flawed. Um that you know, the Joshua's punch mechanics maybe aren't exactly what they should be. There had been questions about his chin. I was at the um, Boxing Writers Awards dinner the night before the fight, and I asked some folks there. And you know, the the what people kind of seemed to be saying, and what what I texted my friend in the run up to the fight was that you know this guy Ruiz might give Joshua some problems. People weren't saying, oh, he's going to win, he's going to knock him out, certainly, but they were saying. Oh, maybe this is kind of a tough matchup for Joshua, especially because since everyone was expecting a washout, you know, two round knockout, three round knockout, the idea was anything besides that. And people were going to start asking questions about Joshua. So I I think going in, there was this idea that this is a this is a tough fight for Joshua. This is a fight where it might be hard for Joshua to look good, but certainly I was not expecting him to get knocked out, and I didn't talk to anyone who was expecting that. That's exactly right. We all thought it was going to be a big knockout win for Anthony Joshua. He's been knocking out every single opponent he's faced, with the exception of Joseph Parker. Other than that, he's always won by knockout. Ruiz did something smart when he went down in the third round. He took a second before he got up, kind of got his wits about him, and that obviously ended up working out in his benefit. He came back to land the shot behind Joshua's ear, knocked off his equilibrium, and knocked him down. My question is, have you ever seen guys like that trade knockdown so quickly on a fight of this type of magnitude on the biggest of big stages i'm trying to remember the sequence of knockdowns in um in the deontay wilder luis ortiz fight um because they traded knockdowns but i can't remember if it was that close um and 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 you know part of what's but part of what makes heavyweights interesting right now is you have this other guy Deontay Wilder who's known for a similar thing right he's got power probably more power than than Anthony Joshua and he's got chin issues right I mean they're kind of different right with Anthony Joshua it seemed like he never recovered from that shot in the third round 
With Deontay Wilder, he's known for getting knocked down and then recovering really well and getting up. And, and you know, you saw that against um, – certainly saw that in the Luis Ortiz fight. So um, it's, it's, it's funny that for years this was something that you would never see in a heavyweight fight. And certainly for years the biggest fights in boxing were Floyd Mayweather fights, which, you know, and Floyd Mayweather was a guy who – didn't really seem to have weaknesses. At least he didn't have weaknesses that the guys he was fighting could expose. And, you know, when a, Floyd Mayweather fights offered us very, very few surprises. So, you know, I, I think that obviously, like I said, this was surprising, but part of what's interesting about the heavyweights right now is that you have these guys that are giving us interesting fights where things happen that are unexpected. And, you know, for a fan of another sport, that might sound silly to say, right? If you're a basketball fan, you're like, well, yeah, of course the game's unexpected. Of course we don't know who's going to win. But it's a strange thing about boxing that often in the super biggest fights, often they're kind of showcase fights. And, you know, we, there is this strange thing in boxing where, you know, like I said, for years you had Floyd Mayweather fighting in these huge pay-per-view fights where everyone kind of agreed on who was going to win. And in the case of Floyd Mayweather, he always did win. That's exactly right. In Floyd Mayweather fights, you knew he was going to win. The surprise element was only if anyone could have success against him, like landing a big shot the way Shane Mosley did in the second round of his fight with Floyd Mayweather, or the way Manny Pacquiao did in the fourth round of his fight with Mayweather, or even Marcos Maidana. Yeah, the Maidana landing, you know, a a few shots on Floyd and kind of like fighting him tough was considered so impressive, uh, you know, that he got a chance to do it again. (laughs) That's exactly right. I just wanted to get your perspective of the end of the fight. Joshua went down twice in that seventh round. He got up with no mouthpiece. His body language was not good. He kind of looked like he didn't want to be there. Um, He's never had a loss before, so he doesn't know that feeling that comes with losing. He's dealing with that now in terms of heartbreak, aftermath. You could even call it humiliation. I think in a future fight, he's going to be a lot more adamant in terms of telling the ref, hey, I'm okay, I'm good to continue. I mean, you know, first of all, I think it's important to remember that that final knockdown was the fourth knockdown. And, you know, typically in a fight, once a guy has been knocked down four times, not always. We've we've, we've seen cases where, you know, someone could come back, but usually you're pretty well beaten by that point. And, And certainly it's the case that nothing about the way he responded, you know, suggested that he was like, let me at him, you know, let me go get this guy. I mean, he spits his mouthpiece out. Um, which is, you know, could be buying time. Who, who knows what, what that is? He, he wobbles back to his corner. I think if the ref wanted, the ref could have waved the fight off when he saw Anthony Joshua wobble back to the corner. Um, you know, ref counts. You know, he says, do you want to continue? Joshua says yes, but, but you know, as you mentioned, he's, he's, he's in the corner leaning up against the ropes. I mean, now typically what, you know, typically works, we expect the referee to say, walk to me and, you know, and, uh, you know, put up your gloves as a way of demonstrating that your legs are okay. But in theory, with Joshua saying, yes, I'm ready to fight, like what would have actually happened? Like the referee would have said, okay, let's fight. And then Ruiz would have come charging into the corner with Anthony Joshua still like standing there leading up against the ropes. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, boxing is such a, is such a brutal and such a dangerous sport. Anyway, I'm fine with what people call early stoppages. I'm fine with, you know, referees being, um, being a, a little quick, a little quicker to say, like, okay, that's enough. Um, you know, as for the psychological part of it, 
obviously it's hard to know what was going through his head. I think it's important to remember that like, you know, he'd been hit in the head a bunch. He'd been knocked down four times and, you know, who knows how clearly he was even thinking at that moment. Um, and again, sometimes, you know, you see this with boxers sometimes where, where the body kind of betrays them, you know, where, you know, where they're willing to fight, but, but their body just doesn't, just doesn't quite have it. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what, what the psychological part of that would mean. I, you know, I think the the conventional wisdom in boxing is that if a guy quits is perceived to have quit, then he's more likely to do it again. Um, but like many of the things that become conventional wisdom in boxing, you know, it, it's not clear that that's backed up by empirical research. Um, it's not like we have great studies of this. Our sample size is small. Our, our data is very poor. So who knows exactly? And it would be interesting to see how the line would move, you know, for the rematch, which is apparently, you know, going to happen in the fall. Um, but I'm not sure. So, you know, you could make a case as you did that, like, you experienced this terrible thing and, you know, of losing for the first time. And next time he's going to be that much more determined. Maybe. Or maybe he's maybe. But also the way he reacted to this loss, he reacted to it like an athlete. In other words, sometimes a fighter reacts to a loss, you know, with, you know, denial, being like, oh, I didn't really lose or or sometimes they're just crushed by it. Right. You think of Ronda Rousey in MMA when she when she gets knocked out by Holly Holm. She's just never the same. Right. It's not like LeBron James losing a playoff game. It's like her whole world, her whole persona is is kind of is cracked. Um he reacted to it like an athlete, right? Like, like Anthony Joshua's whole reaction to that loss, at least so far as we've seen publicly has been like, Hey, look, this wasn't the end of the world. It was a good fight. Things happen in boxing. I lost. I'm going to come back better. And so, you know, you might say that, Oh, that's a healthy reaction to a loss. Or you might say, here's a guy who has lost his first fight and realized it's not the end of the world. You know, will that make him, you know, maybe the next time he goes into the ring, he'll know if he loses, it's not the end of the world. I, I, I don't know how much the how much the psychological part will play a role, and I don't know how much the damage that he took in that fight will play a role. And the, the third thing, of course, is that you know this was not as much as that shot in the third round hurt him. I don't see hurt Joshua. I don't see anyone saying that this was some sort of fluke victory by Andy Ruiz, right? This was Andy Ruiz putting on a very impressive performance and showing people how you beat Anthony Joshua. And, you know, one thing we know in boxing is that sometimes when, when people see that, when people see how you can be beaten as a boxer, sometimes everyone kind of catches on to it and that makes you more vulnerable because now it's known how you can be beaten. So, you know, I, I, I think for those reasons, I would tend, obviously no one's going to make, no one's going to make him a 20 to one favorite Joshua if it, on the rematch with Ruiz. But, you know, I, I think it's possible that in a rematch, Ruiz might look even stronger. At the time of the stoppage, it looked like Anthony Joshua's mouth was saying, I'm okay. It looked like his body language was saying, I may not be okay. Uh, you brought up the rematch, you know, what Vladimir Klitschko, when he got knocked out, when he came back, he took a more defensive approach, a more defensive style. Do you think Joshua's going to do that in the rematch? Is that his most likely course of action, you know, kind of working behind the jab, being a little bit more technical? And how do you see that rematch playing out? Well, I'm, you know, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly, 
<laughs> not not a boxing trainer, and I would never um, I've never presumed to second guess the people who spend their lives doing this and who really know it. Um, as again, from the perspective of a, a fan who watched the uh, watched the fight with some friends from my couch, the thing that I saw that in a weird way would give Joshua the most hope in a rematch is technical flaws. Like he didn't use his jab very well. He didn't, well, you know, one of the, one of the big moments in the fight was when he threw a hook and Ruiz threw a hook at the same time. And Ruiz's hook got there first. So, and the, the reason I say that in a way, that's a good thing for Joshua. It means that there are things he could fix if he's able to fix them, right? There's, you know, there's, there's punching technique that in theory, I think he could learn. Now, I don't know if he will be able to learn that. It's hard, you know, he's a, he's a grown man and it's hard to, you know, change the way you fight in a, in the course of a few months. But, you know, obviously physically he's an incredibly imposing person. And one of the storylines from the fight was he didn't really find ways to use his height and reach against Ruiz. And, you know, at least in theory, in theory, it's possible that he might learn how to use that height and reach, keep Ruiz at the end of his jab and make it impossible for Ruiz to get inside and hurt him. Now, will he be able to do that in the rematch? I have no idea. But again, in a way, it's a in a way, it's a good thing for it's good news for Joshua that everyone watching that fight thought there's more he could be doing to win this fight. And so, you know, he has things he can work on. It's good for Anthony Joshua that there is room for improvement here. He's always been a slightly flawed fighter, and it seems like some of those flaws were actually exposed. He can now go back and work on those. It could actually turn out to be a good thing. Um, just to wrap it up here, wanted to ask you about where this fight, uh, where you place this fight in history in terms of upsets. You know, the names like Tyson, Douglas have come come up. Lewis, Rachman have come up. Where does it rank for you in terms of a boxing upset? Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, first, I guess, when we're talking about boxing upsets, you know, I, I suppose we'd want to bracket um, we'd want to bracket upsets where we don't necessarily think it was an upset, like the first uh, Pacquiao-Timothy Bradley fight, um, you know, where, where we thought the wrong guy got the decision. Because um, that was a big, you know, technically that was a huge upset, but most people thought that, that Pacquiao won that fight. Um, you want to take out robberies from the conversation is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think so. Um, I, you know, I, I, there's two things with upsets, right? One of them is 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 technically like how how much of a shock is it to the people who are in the know and and the other part is the commercial part right and and so i think when you combine those you've got to say this is a big this is a pretty big deal it's certainly i'm not sure that it outranks um uh tyson and buster douglas but certainly it's up there with uh hussein rahman and, and lennox lewis and uh, you know because Joshua was such a big star. Part of what's really fun about a fight like this is not just like, oh, the guy that we thought was going to lose, he won. But part of what I love about this, part of why it was so exciting to me to see this was that it like screwed up everyone's plans. Like everyone, including me, had been talking about, oh, there's these three kings. It's Deontay Wilder. It's Tyson Fury. It's Anthony Joshua. And how are they going to fight? And when are they going to do this thing? And, and all those plans were kind of ruined, right? You have DAZN and, and has kind of building their, you know, this upstart sports broadcasting platform 
kind of building its brand largely around these two stars, Canelo and, and Anthony Joshua. And now one of these two stars has lost, you know, you have British boxing and Anthony Joshua is the biggest thing in British boxing. And, and now he's lost. So I think when you're, when you're, when you're calculating how big an upset this is, it's not just an athletic question. It's also a business question. And I think when you combine those two, like this is huge. And, and, and also you have the thing that you want, which is you want the underdog to be kind of a folk hero. And, and Ruiz has, has played that role really nicely to see him on Jimmy Kimmel after the win, to see him, you know, tweeting back and forth with Snickers about getting a Snickers sponsorship. I mean, <laughs> he really does play the role of this guy who looks like a regular guy who took out this boxing star who looks like an Adonis. And that's a really fun storyline. That's something that really captures people's attention. So it's yes, it's an upset, but it's an upset that's even bigger than just, you know, boxing and sports. It kind of has some pop culture resonance. And I think that's partly what makes this seem so exciting. That's a really interesting way to look at it. It's almost like the time period where the upset happens is what affects how big it is. You know, nowadays we have social media. It's on memes everywhere. He's on late night shows. Like you said, we are literally seeing it everywhere. Um, Kelifa, thank you so much for giving us your thoughts and lending us your expertise uh, in terms of the big heavyweight upset. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Karen. I'm looking forward to the next one. That was Kella Fasana of The New Yorker, as he points out. A lot remains to be seen in terms of how Joshua will bounce back from this fight physically and, more importantly, maybe mentally. Up next, we have a very unique and interesting guest. His name is Dr. Nitin Sethi. You may not have heard that name if you're a boxing fan, but you've probably seen his face. He was the ringside physician, the ringside doctor for Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. He works all the big fights in New York, and he has a very interesting perspective on boxing and how to make the sport safer. That is his passion. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Nitin Sethi. I am speaking to Dr. Nitin K. Sethi. He is the chief medical officer for the New York State Athletic Commission. He is a board-certified neurologist. He serves on the board of the Association of Ringside Physicians. You've seen him ringside at all of the biggest boxing matches in New York. He's always there. Dr. Sethi, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background in medicine and how you got into boxing. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Mr. Bhatia. It's a pleasure and honor to talk to you and your audience. Well, um, I, I grew, I was born in Buffalo, New York, but I was uh, raised in India. So growing up in India, I really was never exposed to boxing. Uh, the games I played was uh, soccer and cricket. But uh, after finishing my medical school and my residence in internal medicine in India, uh, my father had trained as a neurologist in, 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 in New York and he he advised me to go to New York because that's the place where you train to be a good neurologist. So I came here and I did my residency in neurology. And during that time, I was uh, I just le- reached New York. I really did not know many people in the city. Uh, had no family here, so I happened to walk into a boxing gym one day, and uh, there was a trainer, and he was uh, he saw me peeping in through the door, and he said, he, he, he you know he asked me to come inside. He said. Uh, and that, by that time, I realized people could not say my first name, Nipin, so well. In, in America, they used to all call me Sethi. 
So I said, well, what's your name? I said, I'm Sethi. He said, do you want to box? I said, yeah, sure, I'll box. And that was how I started boxing. And uh, I got into boxing. It's uh, amazing sports. And uh, I, I, I'm fortunate I trained with some very good people. And uh, during that time, I was finishing my residency in neurology. I got very interested in traumatic brain injuries, concussions. So at some point in time, I wanted to mix my love of boxing, my passion of neurology, and I was very passionate about trying to make boxing safer. So I approached the New York State Athletic Commission, and I, I requested them, could I be a ringside physician for them? And, uh, uh, you know, I was accepted. And uh, I've been working as a ringside physician since then, and, at you know, about in 2016, uh, it's an honor that I was uh, I was appointed as the chief medical officer for the New York State Athletic Commission, and so that's how that's how it all happened. And we've always seen you ringside at these big fights, especially in New York. You're always checking up on these fighters. I, I wanted to ask you when you're at a big fight, um, whether it be at Madison Square Garden, Barclays, wherever. What do you consider your most important role? I know that fighter safety is important to you, so. How do you make sure that these fighters stay safe? Well, Mr. Bhadi, uh, you know, uh, boxing, whether a small club event or uh, a big event, a lot of media coverage in Barclays or Madison Square Garden is boxing. And then as a neurologist, I'm acutely aware that there's a very high potential for acute traumatic brain injury. Uh, And obviously over the years, these fighters also have a risk for chronic neurological injuries. So I'm very happy to say that uh, the New York State Athletic Commission has really, really, uh, our medical team has really, really emphasized that. And we really put that health and safety of the boxers front and foremost when we are working a fight, no matter, like I said, whether it's a small club event uh, or uh, uh, an event in a big venue like Madison Square Garden. I know you can't get too much into the details of uh, last Saturday night in terms of, you know, due to uh, HIPAA regulations, but you know when there is a big heavyweight fight, uh, I, you know we had the Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz fight. I, I'm just wondering, do you come in with a, a different preparation, knowing that heavyweights can hit harder, um, the you know the knockouts could be harder, there could be more possibility for brain injury or the fight being stopped. Do you have a different preparation when it's a heavyweight fight specifically? Well, you asked, you asked a good question, and um, I, I obviously cannot speak about the fight itself. Uh, you know, that, that information, like you said, is HIPAA protected. Uh, but, you know, in any boxing fight, uh, heavyweight, you know, other weight classes, the potential for acute uh, traumatic brain injury is always there. And I, I think you'll be, I think as a physician, you'll be naive to think that it doesn't exist. I always feel that you cannot, you cannot, you cannot say, you can you can't, you cannot ever make boxing completely safe. You can, you can only make it more safer. That's what I feel. And that's the way I approach boxing that it's a hard sport to make completely safe. Uh, so, you know, we, we have really emphasized a lot of things which go, goes on, go on in the background, which your audience may or may not see, may not see. And, uh, with your permission, I'd like to kind of elaborate about that. So a lot of these things which happen, which even the public is not aware of, starts 
few weeks before the fight actually comes on. You know, uh, as a commission, we request medical records of the fighters. These medical records are very, very closely uh, reviewed by us, by our medical team. And I, I can only talk about our commission. We have very particular medical requirements with respect to they have to present an MRI of the brain leading up to the fight. You know, we'll request other medical records like an EKG. Uh, you know, obviously we check for infectious diseases like hepatitis, HIV. They have to be negative for that. And then based on these fighters, as we're looking at the medical records, we, as a, as a medical as a medical team of the commission, may request additional medical uh, uh, testing for clearance. So this, this is for clearance for them to fight. And that might require a neurology clearance or making them see a cardiologist and get a cardiology clearance. So that happens a few weeks leading up to the fight. Now, once, once if a fighter clears that medical requirement, then I think I would jump to the day of the weigh-in. They probably, again, the public doesn't really see us. We are working behind the scenes. But at the weigh-in, at the time of the weigh-in, each fighter undergoes a weigh-in physical. And the physical is pretty pre-exhaustive, uh, you know, they undergo a complete medical evaluation by a, by a certified ringside physician. And ringside physicians are coming from different backgrounds of training. Uh, and then all the medical records are again reviewed. And then uh, they need to clear that, pre uh, the, that way in physical. So once they clear the way in physical, that's a day before the fight goes on, they also have a pre-fight physical. So a pre-fight physical is right before the fight itself. So that's now the day of the fight. Uh, each fighter undergoes a pre-fight physical. During the pre-fight physical, you know, most of the times you're looking at things like hydration status. Have they hydrated themselves well after taking weight? Is there any new concern which has arisen since the time they had the weigh-in physical to the day of the fight itself? So if you're looking at it now, you know, look at how many things have been done. The medicals have been checked. Now they had one physical at the time of the brain. They have a pre-fight physical. Now let's assume the fighter clears all of these things. Then all the attention shifts to the day of the fight and ringside. And that's how kind of everything which happens in the background, all with the idea to ensure the health and safety of the fighters. Right, so there's a lot of testing and precautions that go into a fighter being allowed to fight in New York. There's a lot of people sharing information and, and working together. Um, just getting back to the fight last Saturday a little bit, um, you know, and I, like I said, I know you're not allowed to talk specifics about the fighter, but just to go over what happened, uh, Andrew Ruiz got up from the canvas on the third round. He landed a big shot uh, behind Anthony Joshua's ear, which kind of um, took him off his equilibrium. Joshua was off balance, uh, falling, falling over a little bit. And then in the seventh round, Joshua got knocked down again, and he kind of got up and gave a little smirk to Andy Ruiz. It was, it was a little bit of an odd, you know, an odd thing to do. Um, and then we all know at, at, at later in that round, um, the referee asked Joshua if he was okay. Joshua said he was, but the referee didn't like his body language and stopped the fight. Um, afterwards, Joshua says he doesn't remember anything from that third round. He says his senses weren't there. So I know you can't speak specifically to Anthony Joshua, but my question is when a fighter exhibits those type of things, they, they don't have their balance, their equilibrium is gone, 
they're they're maybe acting a little bit different than they normally would with some kind of odd behavior. Are those types of things that you would see and say, okay, this fighter probably has suffered a concussion during this fight? Well, Mr. Bhatia, again, very good questions. And again, with the limitations, I, I, I can't uh, think about the fight itself. Uh, that would be irresponsible of me. Uh, I, I, what I feel is the emphasis should be that I strongly believe the one way to make boxing safe, uh, I should say more safe or safer, is education, education, education. Because I, sometimes when I talk about this, I say, uh, if for heaven forbid, something really bad occurs in the ring during the fight or immediately after the fight, the cause is going to be neuro neurological. And you may have a fighter who suffers a hand injury, shoulder dislocation. Uh, that's not going to cause an, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 some sort of a fatal outcome. It's the neurological injuries where you really worry about because they can present very in, uh, in an insidious fashion. For example, a lot of people don't know that you don't need to have loss of consciousness for a concussion to occur. You know, a boxer walks into a stiff jab. A boxer walks into a right. Uh, football field, you see a helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact. For a few seconds, if you're looking at that athlete, you see them, they're stunned. You know, later you ask them, they might say, hey, uh, doc, I felt my bell being rung. But there's no loss of consciousness. Many times the ref will say, are you okay? And the, and the boxer will say, yeah, I'm fine. And the fight goes on. So that's one of the big problems. I wouldn't say that it's not a problem, but that's one of the big things we need to realize about boxing. In boxing, every punch is thrown with the, every punch thrown at the head is thrown with the idea of causing a concussion. You want to knock the other person out. So in boxing, mild concussions or mild grade of concussions happen all the time. Boxers are getting hit. They will, you'll see them stagger for a few, you know, a, a second or two. Uh, sometimes a little bit of a glazed look in the eye, a little small period of confusion or disorientation, and then they come out of it. And, and that's, that's the thing why boxing is so hard to make completely safe. Because if you start, if, you, if the ref, in, in New York, one thing you should know is either the ref or the ringside physician can step up and stop a fight. In a lot of commissions, only the ref can stop a fight. So if a, if a ref stop, stop, uh, if, if a ref starts stopping the fight for every mild concussion, it'll be, they'll be very hard to have any boxing. So, you know, that's the way I, the, the way I look at it is you're keeping a very close watch on the fighters, looking at exactly how they're behaving during the course of the fight. And at some point in time, you have to, if you need to, you have to do a, uh, you have to do a medical stoppage. And I, I have talked about this a lot. There's something called a good medical stoppage versus a bad medical stoppage. A good medical stoppage, in my, in my humble opinion, is a stoppage done at the right time. You don't want to stop a fight too early. You certainly don't want to stop it too late. It's, and it's, and so it's a stoppage done for the right indication. Now, let's assume me as a ringside physician or the referee stops a fight for a laceration and really the laceration was not causing any major problem to the fighter, he or she was able to see. A lot of the people will say that's a bad medical stoppage. You did not need to stop the fight at that point in time. So, you know, you want a good medical stoppage versus a bad medical stoppage, which is a stoppage which you do either too late or you do it for the wrong reasons. So I think that's kind of the principle which we, we, which we in New York really try to adhere, adhere to is 
have the stoppage happen for the right medical reason at the right time. Neither too early, certainly not too late. There is a uh, framework that we have in boxing. We have you know certain regulations on gloves, on weight. Even with that said, fighters still do get concussions. There's there's a chance for CTE. M- my question is, you're doing everything you can to keep these fighters safe in a barbaric sport the way the rules are now. Would you like to see any rules change? Do you want uh, different glove sizes? Do you want headgear? Do you want rehydration clauses? Is there any rules that you'd like to see altered um, for the safety of the sport? Again, Mr. Bhatti, as a, as a person who, who you, you seem to be very knowledgeable about the sport, you raised some very valid points. And a lot of these things have been looked at. How, how can boxing be made more safer? Like I said, it, in my opinion, it cannot be made completely safe. It's a combat sport. But certainly, it, the, you know, it is, it's, you know, the onus is on us as physicians to try to make this sport more safer. And things like which you have raised about glove size, about, you know, obviously wearing protective headgear, you know, dehydration concerns leading up to a fight, use of performance-enhancing drugs, which is now becoming, uh, uh, you know, again, an issue which has raised a lot of concerns. These are all things which need to be looked at, and they have to be looked at collectively. The commissions, uh, you know, the, the sports governing bodies. But I think at an individual level, what I strongly feel is education, education, education. We really need to educate the boxer, the corners, the public about concussions, because uh, you know, a lot of times people don't know when they're concussed. They're, they're, like I said, the, the signs might be so subtle that you may not never pick it up. The other thing about concussion, which I, if I may take one more minute, is that, you know, the, the signs are all subjective. So when you, ha- when you have somebody like, for example, you bang your head against the door right now, and, you know, you might be concussed, but I'll ask you, do you have headache? And if you say, I don't have headache, there's no way for me to know that you have headache. So a lot of times this culture in boxing where, you know, you go up to the corner and you ask, ask the fighter, are, are you hurt? Do you have headache? Sometimes some corners, some boxers, no, I, I don't have headache. They deny it flatly. And these are all subjective things. If, if somebody's denying it, it's very hard for you objectively to figure out what's going on as a, as a doctor, even as a neurologist. Obviously, when you have a, a thing which is clearly visible, a fighter is clearly unstable on his or her feet, uh, you know, that is a much more easier way to say, I, I think he's hurt. So I think the culture has to change a little bit. And I've written about that, that the boxing culture has to be changed. Just like in, 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 in football, early on, it was a culture of you got a hit, you shake it off, and you continue to play. Now it is that if you got a hit, you, know, you bring it to the attention of the doctors on the sideline and let them evaluate you. Same way in boxing, with the limitations of the sport, that – you cannot have something done which will completely change how the sport is. Like, for example, if you start having professional boxers wearing headgear, then you change the nature of the sport, which, again, is something above my pay grade. That's something which other sports governing bodies have to look at. But I think education is something which we can do right now, right now which tells people to better identify concussions and how do you manage them.
Absolutely. And I've read uh, an interview from you where you said, um, you know, if you're a ringside physician, you're probably not doing it necessarily for the money. So you're obviously very passionate um, about about what you do. I know you've written a book, Neurologist at, at Ringside, and it seems like you do this for the love of the sport um, to help to help athletes, to help fighters um, be more safe. So is that is that accurate to say that that this is this is your passion in terms of helping athletes be more safe? Certainly, I think it's a it's a passion. It's an honor to uh, this. It's such a more have more have seen boxing up close. It's a beautiful sport. Uh, uh, the people who are in boxing, the boxers, coaches, promoters. It's it's a, it's a beautiful sport. You meet so many people. It's so many good things about boxing, and so it's that passion which comes ringside. When you do it, you do it from our side, at least from the doctor's point of view. We we do it to make to protect the health and safety of the boxers. That's our, our most important thing. When I go to bed in the night after a boxing event, I want to go with the feeling that with the limitations which I discuss, I did my best to protect these fighters. And if I if I have done that, I think I've served my duty. And I think that's the way I approach it. It's a you know it's a it's a humbling it's a sport which can at times be be very humbled. And so. I always approach it in that way, with a lot of respect, but at the same time, with a lot of passion to try to try to make it even more safer. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for your expertise and your push for higher education for boxer safety. Thank you for your insight, and I look forward to seeing you again ringside at the next big fight. Uh, it was my pleasure, and thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to speak to you and your listeners, Mr. Bhatia. Great stuff there from Dr. Sethi and his push to make the sport safer using education. Let's keep it moving. Next, we have Evan Rutkowski. We used to actually work together back at HBO. He is going to break it down from a business perspective. What does this upset mean for subscribers? Who are the main players in today's boxing landscape? There's new services out there. There's streaming. There's old school pay-per-view. We're going to hear that all from Evan Rakowski. He's the host of the Fistionados podcast. Evan, we obviously just witnessed one of the biggest upsets of all time. My first question for you is, Andy Ruiz, when you first heard about this matchup with him and Anthony Joshua, did you think that Andy Ruiz had a chance? I thought he had a chance to make it fun. I didn't think he had a chance to win. But I guess everybody has that chance to win, which we obviously now know. Um, This one didn't... It it didn't seem preordained in the way that like Golovkin rolls this weekend seems a little bit preordained, uh, like you know some some of those type of things. like it, it did feel like there was a pathway. Um, I think I actually said this on my podcast. I think there was a pathway for Andy to make it really fun, but I didn't think he would win. But hey, I mean, look, it's fun to be wrong sometimes, right? <laughs> it, it really is. It- before we get into the fight, I just wanted to ask your thoughts. I heard you talk about this on your podcast. The difference, the different relationship that the zone actually has with someone like Canelo Alvarez versus Anthony Joshua. If if this was Canelo Alvarez losing, it would have been a much bigger blow to the zone, right? It would it would have been a disaster. I mean, because because it's it's I think especially in a fight like this, like it, it would have been the equivalent of Canelo losing to Rocky Fielding, which, it, and then you got 10 more fights and a ton more money coming. Um, you know, if, if, if you assume that the entire contract is guaranteed, but Anthony Joshua, I mean, 
I don't think DAZN was paying uh, Anthony Joshua huge license fees to do to televise, you know, in America to televise his fights when he fought in the UK. I mean, I know they paid a lot of money to bring him to America, but from that standpoint, in terms of brand recognition, I mean, this is a complete home run. Basically, the first time they bring him to America. You know, no one's really heard of DAZN and no one's really heard of Anthony Joshua. And if he wins, you know, in rounds, if, if round three ends differently and it's Joshua by KO, it, it's tough to get publicity for this. Now everybody knows who Anthony Joshua is. Everybody knows who Andy Ruiz is. Everybody knows what DAZN is. I mean, it's kind of great from that perspective. And we'll get into the potential for the rematch and how big that will be for the zone. Um, but obviously I have to ask you about the third round moment, Ruiz going down. We all think the fight's over, and somehow he gets back up and takes absolute control of this fight, knocks down Joshua four times. When you saw this, I mean, just give us your – what was your reaction? Well, you know, when Ruiz went down and and it's – I'm sitting there watching it with my wife, and, and she doesn't watch too many fights with me, but she was – I was she was legitimately worried for him at that point. You could kind of see in his face, though, and, and I've watched I've watched the round again a number of times, but you could kind of see it that he, he had his senses like he. Yes, he got caught, but he understood. You, you could see him go through sort of mentally the checklist like, OK, I'm up, I'm ready. And like now I got to do what I got to do. And, and, and that actually, he reacted the right way because he brought, you know, when Anthony Joshua went, went in for the finish, that's when it got dangerous. And it's funny because when I watched it live, I didn't see the buck. Like the, I didn't notice Joshua's body buckle. I, I saw Ruiz connected and I saw that he was on shaky legs, but I didn't notice how much of a buckle it really was. And when you watch the replay, I mean, it's clear that he was out right at that moment. Like that was it for Anthony Joshua. And, and, and he fought through, he probably got concussed right there and he probably fought through it and had the round, you know, had, had Ruiz had more time at the end of the round. I mean, it could have been over in round three for Ruiz. There was definitely something going on for Joshua when there was a concussion, you know, after the first knockdown in the seventh round, he kind of got up and smiled at Ruiz. It was just an odd thing to do. Um, yep. His body language obviously did not look good. Um, and he's, he's going to have to deal with the backlash now of, of taking that first loss. So when that loss happened, you know, you heard people say, Oh my God, this is terrible for the zone. I'm, I'm in agreement with you where I think it's a great thing. I think the rematch is going to be huge now. I think that this fight, just by the opt of it, the way that Ruiz looks, has now, um, and the fact that he's heavyweight champion, has now come into the mainstream, and I think people are going to be interested in a rematch. Um, my question for you is, is, do you agree? And how big do you think the rematch will be? Is this going to increase subscribers substantially? Absolutely. No, this is a sub driver. I think that basically with the difference between Canelo and AJ, going back to sort of that initial concept that we were, that we were talking about. So every time Canelo is in a big fight, especially when he's in a really big fight, that's a sub driver for DAZN. That, that drives subscriptions in a real way. And that's what DAZN needs right now. They, they're they not in the business yet of keeping their subscriber base truly happy. Like they're in the business of gaining subscribers. And what what kind of fights gain subscribers? It's really you can put on those those fight cards like the the April twenty sixth card. You know you can put on the World Boxing Super Series and and sort of you know the the April twenty uh, I think it's the twenty sixth card uh, at the Forum. All you want those aren't those are fights that keep the hardcore base happy. Those aren't the sub drivers. This is now a sub driver and AJ probably in the United States 
was oddly in the category of keeping hardcore fans happy rather than driving subs. The, the, the fight that would have been a sub driver is if they would have gotten wilder for two fights. And now just sort of through sheer luck, they made the news because of this upset and, and the rematch is going to be a huge sub driver. Fury Wilder two has been announced uh, for early next year, which is odd because they both have um, uh, flight fights lined up. Tyson Fury, obviously with ESPN Wilder has been fighting on Showtime. So the question is for that rematch, how do you see that working out um, with the different networks? I don't, I don't think it's as hard in, in the, in the Fox ESPN world and, and maybe it's Showtime, but I don't know who's going to, who's going to get that. But it, it, certainly in the Fox ESPN world, it feels like those things are going to be easier to make because I think there's just less things to argue about. Uh, there's not, you know, within the Showtime and HBO world, one of the big sticking points is who gets the replay or how do you do the replay? Like this is a huge deal. Uh, I mean, you can, you can speak to this for Klitschko, uh, Joshua that, I mean, that wasn't on pay-per-view, but that was just figuring that part out of it was, was, it took so long that we weren't even really allowed to market the fight. Uh, and, and in Pacquiao, you know, Mayweather Pacquiao, like at HBO the following week, we had Canelo fighting and it was this sort of big race. Like we had both networks could start it at exactly the same time. And I, I don't, I just don't know that Fox and ESPN care about that stuff as much. Maybe they do, you know, but I, I don't really think they do. And I think that's one less thing to argue about. And I also just think it like it's just they're not really in the business of, you know, yes, they want to be the best in, in terms of boxing. But like they are they also have so many other sports that they're doing. So this isn't, you know, whereas with HBO and Showtime, like the 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 prestige of of upping the other on every, any single point. It mattered so much. And, and this, I, I just don't know if it's that, I think it, it should be easier to make. Absolutely. So that fight will is already signed. We'll find out exactly where it'll land. Obviously, Ruiz and Joshua, number two, will be on the zone. And then from there, we'll kind of have to figure it out. Depends who wins Ruiz-Joshua. Depends who wins Wilder Fury. And then it'll kind of get figured out where those future matchups will be. Um, I wanted to uh, put you on the spot a little bit here. You know, like you said, we, we worked side by side at HBO for a long time. And, and something uh, Richard Plepler used to always say at HBO was that he likes our hand, you know, the hand that we have at HBO. So now with all the different networks in boxing, you have uh, PBC with Fox and Showtime. You have The Zone. You have ESPN. Whose hand do you like most in terms of being the power player in boxing? If you had to be one of the networks, who would you be? If I had to be one of the networks right now, uh, I, it, it's probably ESPN or Fox. I think that it's, it, it's probably ESPN. It's probably ESPN. Uh, but I think when Fox, if Fox truly makes a commitment to their strategy, I think uh, to their, to changing their, their strategy and really going with live events a lot more, I think they can absolutely, you know, make an argument that, that they're in the best position, but, um, you know, ESPN, look, it's just the simple fact it's a, it's an all sports network. Like you, that's the best place to find casual boxing fans and convert them to hardcore fans. That's the best place to find general sports fans and convert them to casual boxing fans. 
um, and, and do that whole thing. It's just, and it's a very just sustainable system. You also are very balanced in the way that you've got both ESPN plus and ESPN. So you're in the streaming business and you're also in, you know, the, the regular network business, but, uh, don't, you know, Fox, if they, if they really execute their strategy, well, I think they're in a great spot too. And what do you think about the landscape right now as a boxing consumer? For a long time, it was HBO and Showtime having the big fights. There would be fights on ESPN, at lower level fights, Friday night fights. And then big fights would be on pay-per-view, $75 um, and even more sometimes for bigger fights on HD. Right now, it's obviously a completely different landscape, like we said. There's fights on different networks. And there are still pay-per-views, um, but there's more subscription services what do you think uh, of life right now for a boxing fan and a boxing consumer? Is it better or worse than it used to be? I think it's better. I, th- I think it's better. And I think it will continue to be better. Uh, first of all, I just think with the amount of money coming into the sport, usually that's a really good thing. I know traditionally boxing people say that's not a great thing or that or boxing will screw it up or something like that. And, and I just think we're, we're in a different era where it's not just a couple uh, sort of lazy promoters taking TV money and try, like you have to prove yourself and 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 continually prove yourself uh, on ESPN and 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 Fox and and these other you know you can't just put up a low rating and it doesn't matter they're selling ads against the fights you know you need to perform uh, so I, I think I think for consumers in this new era it's like. You're seeing a lot of different options. There's a lot more money. Yes, where you're missing out, I think what will end up happening is for the big pay-per-view fights, promoters and networks will work together more often. I think you'll see that more often. I think for the fights on the network, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you're doing the trade. I know that it was just on boxing scene yesterday or today where – DAZN and, and, you know, and Matchroom and, and ESPN and Top Rank are sort of executing a trade and you're going to see some good fights from it. And I think those are possible uh, and, and hopefully be, they become much more the norm. So you see a better product on, you know, regular television, not pay-per-view. But just your, your weekend, week out fights, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to uh, regularly sort of put fighters on other platforms for that. I mean, it, it makes sense to put your best product forward, but it's, it's an incredibly competitive marketplace. And I think that, you know, I think consumers will end up winning. Now, what we also have seen here, and, and I know I'm, I'm rambling on this, but this is something I've talked a lot about it. You know, there's, there's also just a ton of product coming into the marketplace. And I think what's annoying is when HBO and Showtime were at their best, they were curating the product really well for consumers. And that's not necessarily happening. Like usually we're getting two or three really great fights or, you know, per weekend, it's just on two or three fight cards. So it's kind of annoying to have to watch all of it. And you see some crap, you know, with the good stuff. There's a lot more competition now. It's better for the fans, but there's dilution there in cards as well. Um, So before we wrap up, you know, it was such an amazing upset. And just to put a bow on it, you know, I've heard you compare it to Tyson Douglas. I just want to know where this heavyweight upset uh, ranks in, in your all-time list. I think, it's, I think it's behind Tyson Douglas, and I think it's ahead. I know the other 
what the other candidates are, Rachman and, and uh, you know, the, uh, maybe Klitschko versus Corey Sanders. And I think I just think it's ahead. It's ahead of those. I think this has entered the public consciousness much more so than anything since Tyson Douglas. And some of that is the nature of the upset and, and the odds. But some of that is just who Andy Ruiz is and who Anthony Joshua is. I mean, it's it's just impossible to look at both fighters and think to yourself that Andy Ruiz has a chance at winning, even if you're a hardcore boxing fan and you under you understand the skill level that he fights at it. You know, that's it's just human nature to look at the comparison and and think anything else. I mean, Buster Douglas was in shape and, and, you know, yes, like everybody thought Tyson was invincible, but Buster Douglas, like he, he did not come in looking anything remotely like Andy Ruiz did. So I think that that's part of that. That will be part of the historical lore of this fight as well. Whether, you know, whether, and, and to Ruiz's credit, he's, he sort of takes that in stride. Like he understands that's part of it and and he has fun with it. And I think that will serve him very well in the future. I completely agree. I think people sitting on the couch watching say, hey, that guy looks like me and he's heavyweight champion of the world. And I think it yep. is great that Ruiz does embrace it. Hopefully he gets that Snickers deal or endorsement soon. Um, we'll be watching for that. Evan, thank you so much for the time and, and breaking down the big heavyweight upset. Thanks for having me. That was Evan Rutkowski breaking down what happened from a business perspective. Next up, we're going to talk to Dave Harmon. He is the producer for The Zone. He was producing this fight in the TV truck. He's going to give us his perspective on what it was like to be there. He has produced some of the biggest fights in the last 30 years. Where does Joshua Ruiz rank in all the great fights that he's produced? I am speaking with Dave Harmon. He was a producer at HBO for many years, producing the biggest fights in the world and now producing for The Zone. Dave, you were the producer for one of the biggest heavyweight fights of all time, one of the biggest heavyweight upsets of all time, Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. What was it like for you in terms of preparation, getting ready for a big Anthony Joshua fight and knowing that you're producing this for people around the world to see? Well, there's a lot that goes into it. So uh, let's focus on what's different about a fight like this. Uh, Because it has worldwide attention, Sky TV and um, all around the world, there are all broadcasters that wind up coming to Madison Square Garden as well. So I'm not just in the end in charge of the zone's broadcast because all these other broadcasters take the the zone feed and uh, want to know all sorts of details about what we're going to do, what we have planned, when they have to get off us because we're doing things unique to the zone. And so I would say it's a very technical job in that point in that we have to be prepared to have everyone in the world following along as we get ready for this show. Once we get to the actual fight, covering a fight is the same whether it's a big fight or the smallest fight is you don't want to miss a punch. You want to all be always have the best angle. So you're not blocked by the ref or the fighters and you have as many replay angles as possible so that you're not blocked by the fighters or the ref again for that. And we'll get to the fight in a second, but one thing I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about, I've heard you talk about this in the past is peaking 
for that main event. Because if you're in a production truck, anyone who's worked in a production truck, you know that it's going to be a very long day. There's going to be many undercards. And you really want to be at your best when that main event hits. When Anthony Joshua is walking to the ring, you want to be at your peak state. So how do you try to do that? And how do you try to tell the crew and the people working with you to try to have that same mentality? I, I do tell that to every crew. And I do remind myself during the five to six other fights that we wound up with six fights before the main event uh, this past Saturday before the Joshua Ruiz fight. And you can think about it all you want, but when Katie Taylor has a big fight and Callum Smith has a big fight, I actually, I'm not really sure how, how I do pace myself. I can't say I talk less because the people who need to hear me are everywhere. They're in the dressing rooms with the fighters. They're in the ring with Michael Buffer or David Diamante. They're in the truck with the zone people. Uh, there's people in the um, doing replays. There are people doing graphics. All these people for each fight need to know what's up. So while I wish I could actually pace myself, I don't really have a formula of how to do it other than reminding myself not to get too excited and too invested in any of the previous fights so that by the time I get to the main event, I'm exhausted. And, you know, with this past weekend, you know, we went on the air at uh, four at four thirty PM and really weren't done until midnight. So <laughs> however however it got from A to B was a it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of stamina by doing other shows and not having that as your first or second show. You know, once you've done a lot of shows, perhaps maybe that makes it a little easier too. It certainly was a very long night, a shocking night, obviously. And your fight week preparation, you know, you're preparing the format or the rundown. You're going to meetings with the fighters, interviewing them, talking to them. You're speaking with, uh, people who are going to be working with you in the truck. Was there ever a sense from anyone that you talked to that it was possible that Ruiz would even pull off the upset? We knew he was a late opponent uh, for Jarrell Miller, who dropped out. But everyone seemed to be focusing on Anthony Joshua. He's the heavyweight champion. He's undefeated. Everyone wants to see him fight Wilder. It seemed like Ruiz, maybe the way he looks... Maybe, you know, if you look at he has a loss on his record, even though it was a close fight, no one necessarily gave him a chance. When you were preparing for this during fight week, did you hear anyone giving him a chance or were you were you uh, thinking like everyone else? Hey, this is going to be Joshua doing his thing. Well, I was thinking it was going to be Joshua doing his thing, but not in one or two rounds, but against an experienced fighter having it take five, six rounds. I will want to give credit. There were two people that I did here, give him more of a chance than that. The first was Sergio Mora. He is the color analyst for the zone. And, you know, he walked around saying he's the Mexican Rocky, that, you know, Andy Ruiz. But, and, and, and everyone thought at first he was just making some cute little thing, but he was serious. He felt like a lot of the parallels between the way Apollo Creed picked Rocky out of the phone book and uh, the way 
he thought that uh, no one was giving Rocky and Ruiz a chance uh, had a lot of parallels. And if you listen to his call, even of round one of the Ruiz fight, he um, is all over what the difference was in how Andy Ruiz was coming forward and being the aggressor and giving himself the best chance to win and Anthony Joshua was not. The other is Lee Groves of CompuBox. CompuBox gives reports on how they see fights going from a statistical basis. And they noted that ever since the Anthony Joshua fight against Vlad Klitschko, that Joshua had significantly reduced his punch output against his opponents since then. And one of the things that Lee Groves felt was um, that, that that was because, you know, he doesn't know for sure, but he said it seemed like a discussion of um, uh, a guy, another guy, the way when Vlad Klitschko got um, uh, upset uh, that Anthony Joshua, by realizing he almost lost, was now going to fight a more safety first fight, protect his chin a little bit more. And so against Takam, Parker, and Povetkin, uh, Lee Groves noticed that uh, Anthony's offense was significantly reduced without his connect percentage going up. Because obviously there's a different way to look at older fighters um, that they get wiser, like Juan Manuel Marquez, and they throw less punches, but they land more. Anthony Joshua isn't an older fighter, and he wasn't landing more. So Lee Grove said, don't know what this means, uh, having a new safety first Anthony Joshua, but if his chin is suspect, if his defense isn't up to speed, then this might not be the best way for Anthony Joshua to approach the next part of his career. So I think those things, look, they were in my head with Sergio Moore and Lee Groves were saying as the fight started, but it wasn't until the end of round one that I started going, yeah, you know, these, these guys may have a little point here. So credit to Sergio Mora, credit to Lee Groves, seeing something, maybe the kernel of an idea of something that other people were not seeing. As the main event started, could you give people who may not have worked with you before in a production truck, just give a little perspective of where you are. You're obviously in the production truck. You're talking to people on headset, 40, 50 people, to directors, to announcers, to stage managers. Give us your perspective of where, of where you were and I'd also like to know, I think the most interesting moment in the fight is Ruiz goes down. That was somewhat expected. He gets up and somehow lands a shot on the side of Joshua's head and knocks him down, which I think was one of the most shocking moments in recent memory. Give us perspective of where you were when that happened and what was going through your head. Okay, so the TV truck looks an awful lot like you expect it to from movies and television shows, which show you a mobile unit with a million monitors in it. And that's what the, the zone truck does look like. They park it in a little protected area in the Madison Square Garden region of uh, between 31st and 33rd streets, between 7th and 8th avenues. 
they, they, they don't have to park them on the street that way. They just park them tucked into the garden. So the, this mobile unit, which is as large as a full tractor trailer, is filled with monitors and um, hard drive, EVS, you know, machines, which have replaced um, tape machines. And they're more like, you know, what you'd have on a DVR. And uh, so in the control room I'm in, I'm sitting next to the director of the show, Rick Bazinski, and the technical director, Vlad, who's pushing all the buttons that the director is calling out cameras, the director's calling out tape machines, the director's calling out uh, effects for replay wipes. All the technical stuff comes from the technical director. So they're on one row. The row behind me is Matt Miller, who's the head of boxing for the zone. And Sophia Zinger, who is the head of graphics for the zone. And the graphics are the things you see on the screen that show you the round number, the clock, what their trunk colors are, any statistics from CompuBox, any other information we might want to give you about Joshua Ruiz. All those things that are text come from there. And Sophia is in charge of two separate graphic operators who actually are the ones who are the technicians on that. Those are the key people in the first two rows there. There's a third row with very important people like John McCormick, but uh, for my purposes, uh, I am concerned during the fight with those first two rows. And on the headset, I am in constant communication with everyone you're saying, people at ringside, people in the tape room, uh, for what's going on. So the third round starts. And uh, yes, Ruiz gets knocked down, and uh, we quickly wind up finding that, uh, you know, we have some great replay angles for that. We have multiple angles for that, and uh, we're ready to show that. Ruiz gets up, and I don't know if you noticed, just before Ruiz knocks Joshua down, Joshua tried the end the, to end the fight with like a wilder like right hand, and he kind of grazes Ruiz with it. But because he's committed so unbelievably fully for a professional fighter like Ruiz, it turned into Ruiz's opportunity. And yes, within probably about fifteen seconds of getting up from being knocked down, Ruiz has now knocked Joshua down. So I have to deal with the people in the replay area. Okay, we have angles of Ruiz getting knocked down. Now we need angles of Anthony Joshua getting knocked down. Uh, once they show me all the different angles we have, we only have a minute between rounds to show these replays. So the next problem is I'm thinking during this fight in particular with how poorly Anthony Joshua is looking at the end of the round. We have to be careful not to show too many replays because if we show too many replays, we won't have time to see Anthony Joshua's corner, to see how clear eyed he is, to see what, uh, you know, his trainer McCracken is saying, to see what he might be saying to McCracken. And so some of the most important parts of a live show are the live things, uh, not just the replays. So I found a way to choose uh, the best angles to have the uh, corner at the same time. And I think the only thing that went poorly in between rounds there um, is that we didn't get all the replays 
fully in. And so as the bell starts for round four, we're still finishing a replay. And that's only a risk in that if in the first three seconds of the next round, Ruiz had knocked Joshua down again, we might not have seen it. So you don't want to, uh, you don't want to have replays spilling over into the next round, but because one, because it was one of the most interesting rounds in boxing in heavyweight boxing, recent memory, I took the risk and we were rewarded because we got all the replays in and you still saw all the action in the next round. Being in that arena, it was absolutely electric as you would have imagined. But as uh, Ruiz got up and knocked down Joshua, I think everyone's jaw went to the floor. And it was a moment of shock. But once everyone picked up their jaw off the floor, they started to root for Ruiz. It was, it was a heavy UK crowd. And it seemed like everyone was started to root for Ruiz because in a way, it seems like just based on how he looks, he represents the everyman. And, and people started to root for him. And it was as he knocked out Joshua finally, or the ref waved it off in the last round, people were, were happy and excited. And, and um, my question for you is, you know, as, as a, someone who's in the arena or a fan, you're just taking this moment in and, and thinking of what this means and you're happy for Ruiz. For you as the producer, you don't have a moment to, to have that uh, moment of perspective. You have to tell this story and you have to let people watching around the world get the analysis from the announcers, get interviews. So just take me a little bit through your thought process when the fight's being waved off and, and what are you thinking at that moment and what's next for you there? <laughs> well, uh, when a fight is waved off, um, I, I got to say I've watched enough boxing in my life that it wasn't really a surprise at that point that it was waved off. So there was no real shock in the truck so at that point, I'm thinking of how can we best show replays of what led to the stoppage. And I did notice that uh, the ref spent a, a particularly long amount of time with Joshua in the corner asking, are you okay? And we have mics on all these things. So besides replays of the final knockdowns and the stoppage, I asked the tape room in this particular case for something unique, which was to dedicate one person to put on a pair of headphones and listen very carefully to the exchange in the corner between the ref and Joshua to see if there's something worth playing back for our audience that we might not have caught the first time. And in fact, there was something. So I alert the announcers that besides the replays, I also have this bit of corner audio of the stoppage. And Brian Kenny, our blow-by-blow -blow guy, after he sees it on the air, then on the air says, wow, I'm glad I saw that because I heard something I didn't hear before. I knew the ref had asked if he was okay, but I heard Anthony Joshua say yes. And then I heard, but I heard it in a way that he didn't have much conviction. So it really did enlighten for me, and this is Brian Kenny still talking, it really enlightened for me, you know, good decision to stop the fight. Really good decision because that exchange was, was fascinating. So I'm particularly proud of that moment that we found that little nugget in the audio and didn't just have slow-mo replays, which don't have audio. 
for you, you've been involved in the production of the biggest fights in recent memory. You've been producing fights for over 30 years. A lot of the, the biggest boxing moments. I Just to wrap it up, I, I'd like to know where you rank this fight. Heavyweight championship, belts changing hands, a massive upset. I just want to know where you rank this in boxing history in terms of fights that you've been at live, in terms of upsets. Where do you, where do you place Joshua versus Ruiz? I'm going to have to stick with fights I've been at. And the reason I'm going to say that is not because I'm a person who doesn't know my boxing history, but it's very hard for me to put like Cinderella man, you know, James Braddock in like context of these kinds of things, you know, or, or, or Max Schmeling beating Joe Lewis. Everyone's so quick to say, you know, that the thing that just happened is the biggest or the greatest. I don't know. I don't know about fights like that. So here's my ranking. Number one biggest shock that I was at and working was Tyson over Douglas. Number two was Haseem Rockman over Lennox Lewis in South Africa. And three is uh, Andy Ruiz over Anthony Joshua. So, you know, I, I don't know in what order we want to go in here uh, uh, with my list, but uh, what what intrigues you about my list? I mean, that's that right there is rarefied air, right? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> putting it up there with, with the biggest upsets of all time. Okay, yeah. I, if I want to defend one, because lots of people have been talking about Tyson Douglas, the thing about Haseem Rockman and Lennox Lewis at that time was that everyone did consider Lennox Lewis to be a really full champion. He had the height, he had the reach, he had the power, he had the defense. He, he, yes, he had had you know, his own shocking moments in his career before, but he was at his pow- height of his powers um, as a heavyweight champion and getting the respect at that time. And he had even, uh, which we wonder, we'll, we'll never know whether it contributed to that upset. He was play, playing a part in Ocean's Eleven uh, and was late in getting to South Africa for the rest of his training because he was too busy filming a movie. And uh, so when Haseem Rockman came out, you know, at because um, of the time change in Africa, it was about 10 a.m. when that fight started in Africa in a tent in the middle of nowhere where South Africa had just come out of apartheid and Larry Merchant had just done an interview with the recently freed Nelson Mandela on that telecast. It felt like this big coming out party for Lennox Lewis. And uh, so for having this American come over to South Africa during all that and, and take a, a champion like that out. I, I, my jaw was, was more on the floor just by a little bit than even, even Anthony Joshua losing to Andy Ruiz. I don't know for sure, but I think, uh, Haseen Rahman may have, uh, snuck in, uh, some Snickers before that fight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, then that's, that's a nice common denominator. then. <laughs> Dave Harmon produced some of the biggest fights in boxing history. The producer for Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz, and I'm sure you'll be producing the rematch when they lock horns again. Thanks so much for your time and breaking it down for us. Thanks, Gary. 
that was Dave Harmon breaking it down for us with his unique perspective. Next up is Dan Canobio. You've seen him on Twitter. You've seen him as an announcer on Fox. He is also part of CompuBox. They track the punch statistics of fights. They look at the trends. We're going to get his take of Anthony Joshua versus Andrew Ruiz from a numbers perspective. Speaking with Dan Canobio, Fox Sports commentator, CompuBox operator. You're a numbers guy, crunching the numbers ringside. Tell us a little bit about Joshua and Ruiz. Obviously, you were shocked at the result, as we all were. From a numbers perspective, what do you think about it? I mean, from a, just from a, a strictly numbers standpoint, I was kind of taken back by the low amount of punches that Anthony Joshua was throwing in the fight. You know, he kind of changed his whole style up after he beat Klitschko. Before he fought Klitschko, 11 fights tracked by CompuBox, he was throwing like 50 punches around, which is a little bit more than average for a heavyweight. After he fought Klitschko, and he, he had the belts, he kind of changed his whole style up. He went from being like a seek-and-destroy power puncher. I think it was something like 60% of his of his punches were power punches. Kind of flipped it around. to 60% of his punches were jabs now in the four fights since Klitschko. So, I, you know, he was on record all week long. Uh, that was Joshua saying that, you know, I kind of want to uh, I want to go out there and be like Wilder. I want to be reckless. I, I want to be a KO artist, but my team kind of won't let me. My guys won't let me. And maybe I'm thinking, you know, why would he admit something like that? Maybe his team knew that, you know, he's a little chinny. Maybe his team knew that, he, you know, when he trades, he kind of leaves his head up. And look what he did in that third round with Ruiz. He tagged him. He had him on the ground. And I thought he got a little reckless. I thought he got a little carried away. He probably wanted to knock him out in spectacular fashion in that third round, especially if he was dealing with what we've heard he's dealing with, anxiety issues, uh, you know, maybe a concussion, maybe got dropped, all that stuff. But, you know, it just showed me that that Joshua, you know, this isn't the fighter that he wants to be. I feel like he wants to throw more punches, but I was taken back by by the low amount of, of punches. He's only throwing 25 punches around in the seven rounds with uh, Ruiz. So that's really interesting. He's changed his style because he realized maybe he has a shaky chin. And he said, I need to be more defensive. I need to work the jab more. I need to brawl less. And it sounds like maybe he said, oh, my team said to do this, but maybe that was a deliberate thought in his own head. And then when he opens up to go for the KO, that's when he gets dropped. And we all know what happened at the end of that fight. So what about Ruiz's style? You know, you tr when you're tracking the numbers, he's not a work the jab type of guy. He's more of a, a flurry Mexican style. Can you tell, what, what do you think about Ruiz's style? Ruiz is your prototypical Mexican style fighter. He just happens to be one of the only Mexican heavyweights out there. I think Chris Ariola is one of the other ones. But he, he throws a lot of punches. He is different than Tyson Fury. He's different than Deontay Wilder. And he's different than Anthony Joshua. He throws his hands a lot more. Something... Uh, in between 60 and 65 punches around. He goes to the body, too. That's something that we saw with uh, in the Joshua fight. He, he heard him uh, to the body, got his attention, and then the head will fall. It's something that I talked to Ruiz about when we interviewed him last week at the at the, at the the fighter press conferences about, you know, how are you going to get inside on, on Joshua, get inside on a bigger guy? Because uh, Andy Ruiz is not tall. He's, what, maybe 5'10 on, on a good day? So he has to get inside. He's going to be continue if he wants to keep winning. If he beats Joshua, he's probably going to fight Wilder or Tyson Fury. Those guys are, are monsters. They're huge. Andy Ruiz is 5'10, so you've got to get inside and, and go to the body. But Andy Ruiz is is kind of different than the, the three-headed monster that once was in the heavyweight division. That's Joshua, Wilder, and Fury. He throws his hands more. Uh, he's willing to trade. He has to get hit in order to, to hit the other guy, and we saw that. Uh, against Joshua. He ate some huge punches. I think that not enough people are giving Ruiz enough credit for his chin. I mean, he weathered a huge storm there 
and then went on to knock to knock out the heavyweight champion of the world, the gold medalist Anthony Joshua. Man, this fight is, I feel like it's not, I feel like people were talking about it still. And what's today when we're, as we sit and we do this? Today's Wednesday. It's almost four days after the fight. People are still talking about it. It's all over the internet. Every day there's a new meme. Every day there's a new Instagram thing. It's so good for the sport of boxing. I love you, Andy Ruiz. So you talked about the three-headed monster in the heavyweight division that was Joshua, Wilder and Fury. Now, I actually think what happened here was a good thing for boxing because now there's a four-headed monster. First of all, the rematch is going to be huge, massive, and other heavyweights have gone through this. Klitschko went through this getting knocked out. Lennox Lewis got knocked out. This has happened before, and they've come back to be great. So I think it's a good thing. How do you see Ruiz now in the mix matching up against the Wilders of the world, the Furies of the world? We talked about him going to the body more. If he fights Fury, Fury can also move. And so that's two big guys moving. Now, Fury's got like a foot of height on him as well. Um, how do you see him matching up against a Wilder or Fury? We know Wilder and Fury are fighting in January. They're going to have the rematch. But after that, it's going to be wide open for these heavyweights to clash. So how do you see Ruiz matching up? Listen, Ruiz is, is going to make a fight exciting. You know, Anthony Joshua doesn't really make fights exciting because he, he'll even say he doesn't because look at the numbers. He doesn't. He throws a lot of jabs. Tyson Fury. He's not really an exciting fight, Tyson Fury. He, let's be honest. He's, uh, you know, he'll gum you up in there. He'll hold you. He's like Hopkins, but in, in a heavyweight body. Deontay Wilder, on the other end, on the other end, goes out for, for destruction, and he's one of the most exciting fighters in boxing today. Andy Ruiz will always make exciting fights because of his style, his willingness to trade, his willingness to get punched. So, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about fights with him and Wilder, which can easily be made for, for uh, on a PBC. But, you know, if, if Ruiz loses, even if Ruiz loses to uh, Joshua in the rematch, I still think Wilder will fight uh, Andy Ruiz because, let's be honest, the heavyweight division is very top-heavy. I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, viable opponents out there. Andy Ruiz now has entered his name into that pantheon of heavyweights. So I think that Andy Ruiz... Is is like a breath of fresh air into the heavyweight division. A guy that throws a lot of punches. He's very soft-spoken. He's very marketable. Let's be honest. Uh, New York, uh, not New York, but the U.S., everyone's fat. <laughs> so when you see Andy Ruiz walking around, and like everyone is set, they can relate to this guy because he's going out there as a 270-pound guy and knocking out guys that look like they are chiseled from stone. It's a good time in the heavyweight division because Fury is like kind of that likable character. Wilder is outspoken. And now Ruiz, like you said, he's relatable. He's he's embracing it. He's saying, I do eat Snickers before each fight. So when you look at this fight and what happens, where do you rank this in terms of upsets in boxing? I mean, this is literally one of the biggest upsets in sports history, not just boxing history. Where do, You've been ringside for many fights, counting punches. Where do you rate this? Oh, man. Uh, this has been the year of the upset in boxing. You know, uh, I know that 2018, the last fight of 2018 w was uh, Charlo against Harrison, and that wasn't you know, on the level of that. Uh, but then you see Andrew Cancio, what he did on, on the zone, beating Machado, and that was huge. Uh, you know, go look at uh, some of the other big upsets that have happened this year. But nothing on the scale of, of Andy Ruiz beating Joshua. It's I don't think it's up there with Tyson. I know Tyson Douglas, people are throwing that around because uh, the casual fan will do that, and they want to relate it to something. I don't think it's right at that level because Mike Tyson was just, like, unbeatable. And I think people, more people knew Mike Tyson. He was a killer than they know Anthony Joshua. And Buster Douglas was, like, a name. Like, people knew Buster Douglas. Or, uh, back then, you know, boxing was a lot more popular. But people knew Buster Douglas. So I don't think – I think Buster Douglas and, and Tyson is number one. I think that uh, Rockman Lewis, I feel like, is a close second. That was in South Africa, so not a lot of people were, were tuning in. 
But look at what happened with that. Lewis came back, knocked him out. I rank it, you know, right there, third. Maybe, you know, you, you can make a case. But the thing that makes this different than any other uh, upset, you know, Buster Douglas was in absolutely great shape for that fight w w with Mike Tyson. You know, uh, Rockman's a little on, on the pudgy side, but he was still built. <laughs> Andy Ruiz went in at 270 pounds. Like, he had back cleavage. He didn't, he just didn't care. He told everyone in interviews, I'm a chubby guy. I'm a chubby Mexican guy that eats Snickers. So when you factor that in, that's what it got the imagination of the casual fan, got the imagination of everyone. My mom doesn't watch boxing. She knew that this was huge. When she took a look at Andy Ruiz and she took a look at Andrew, uh, at, at Joshua. So I think that's what makes this, this is, people are going to remember this just from the, you know, aesthetically wise. He has the, the funny figure, but he actually is a hard worker. We've seen him in the gym doing, you know, doing a lot of conditioning work, moving well for a big man. Um, so I'm going to put you in the spot a little bit here. We know that Joshua has triggered the rematch clause with Ruiz. We don't know where that fight's going to happen. Maybe the UK. Ruiz said he wants Mexico. We'll see what happens. If you had to make a pick right now on that rematch, we know Joshua's going to come in and be more defensive. Like you've been saying, he's already been trending in that direction of, of doing less power punches, more jabs, being more defensive. He's probably going to do that even more now. What's your official prediction? Joshua Ruiz, too. I'm, I'm riding the bandwagon. I'm going with Ruiz strictly because Anthony Joshua has to think about this for the next six months. Every day, you know he's thinking about this. It's going to take over his thoughts. And if anything's true, I don't, I don't want to go into the rumors about, you know, the anxiety or anything that happened beforehand, maybe getting knocked out and sparring. If he got knocked out and sparring, that's not good. That just shows you that this guy has, like, uh, he's chinny. He is what he is. But I think that Ruiz is trending upwards. Um, it's tough. It's really tough, but I, I like the way that Ruiz fights. I think he's fearless, and I think that even more pressure is going to be on Anthony Joshua in the rematch, especially if it's in the U.K. There was a lot of pressure on him here in, in, uh, in New York, in the U.S. I think that not, people, not enough people were talking about the amount of pressure that was on Anthony Joshua in a no-win fight, knowing that he had huge fights down the line. I think that all caught up to him. I think that when he was in that uh, locker room and uh, maybe he did get buzzed in sparring, maybe he sort of had some doubts. I think that a Andy Ruiz has no doubts. Andy Ruiz is still playing with house money right now. So if you had to ask me right now, I know it's a, it's a tough one, but I'll go with Ruiz. Ruiz via knockout? Yes. I mean, none of these fights are going to the cards. Like uh, only Tyson Fury, you know, the, the type of guy that his style will, will bring fights uh, to the scorecards. I think that Joshua and, and Ruiz are going to go after each other. They're going to seek and destroy each other. But I think that, that Ruiz has the better chin. And I also think that he has the mental edge over Joshua. I think Joshua is going to make some adjustments. And I actually think him being chinny makes it a lot more exciting. It's like any defensive chinny fighter like an Amir Khan or anyone else. It's like a man walking a tightrope. And it adds an, a special intrigue to every fight they're in because you say at any second something could happen to make this really exciting. So just I think it's a really exciting time in the heavyweight division in boxing altogether and looking forward to that rematch and Wilder Fury. I'm sure you are too. Oh my God, this is great. I mean, everyone was looking past this fight as you know, as a replacement. Uh, this is just a stopgap to get the fights that we really want to see. Everyone wants to see Wilder, Joshua. Then all of a sudden, this is what the beauty of boxing and the beauty of heavyweight boxing. You have something like Andy Ruiz comes through, and just I've never seen anything like this. This is I've never seen the type of of reaction that this fight is getting. Like people like are hitting me up that aren't boxing fans, asking me their thoughts on it. You know, I did that interview with uh, Andy Ruiz last week, and it's you know, the numbers on YouTube are, are are showing you that people are just searching this guy. This is a phenomenon, and it's because that he doesn't look like a heavyweight. People can relate to it, and like we just talked about earlier, it, it kind of breathes new life 
into the heavyweight division, which was already exciting to begin with. Now we have another player in there, a Mexican. Let's be honest, the Mexican fans in boxing are the best fans. They're the lifeblood of the sport. I've always said that. Throw a Mexican into this into this fray now. It's a four-headed monster. You also throw in Luis Ortiz. Also throw in uh, Usyk. So right now, you know, the heavyweight division was exciting and it just got ratcheted up maybe tenfold now with Ruiz. That's why we love boxing, the theater of the unexpected. Thank you, Dan, breaking it down ringside, counting stats. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. That is why we love boxing. That was Dan Canobio giving us his take. Next up, we have another unique perspective. We have Ed Maholland. He is the ringside photographer. He's going to tell us how he works as a boxing ringside photographer and his thoughts of shooting and being at Joshua versus Ruiz. I'm speaking with Ed Mulholland. He is the world famous boxing photographer, sports photographer. You can touch him ringside, usually wearing uh, a bright red records cap. It's very easily identifiable. Um, you actually chose, uh, Ed, you chose to go with the black cap this time, right? I did. Uh... Yeah, no, it's, uh, shows up a little too much on TV sometimes. Uh, so I dialed it back a little for this fight. Yeah. So this was obviously such a massive event, such a big fight. When you're preparing, uh, to shoot a fight like this, do you do anything differently knowing that the magnitude is this high? Uh, you know what? It depends on the fight, but yeah, for something like this, where you, you get, uh, you know, th this kind of magnitude with, uh, you know, with like Joshua and, you know, any kind of Anthony Joshua or you get a fight like a, a Canelo and a Triple G or something of that. You're, you're working on kind of a different scale. So, uh, you know, for this, uh, I had uh, so for Matchroom, we had three photographers at the event. We had uh, Mark Robinson, who's our UK photographer, was also uh, on site and uh, Melina Pisano, who uh, shoots uh, second for me normally. On uh, other shows was also uh, there. So, I mean, we were running three photographers. We had three card runners. We had two photo editors, um, you know, all on site. And then we were hanging remote cameras, uh, you know, uh, covering dressing rooms. So, yeah, a lot of prep went into this one. Yeah. And give me a little bit of idea of the gear that you have. I mean, how many cameras, how many lenses, what, what uh, are you working with? So, for... You know, a ringside shoot, I'm generally using two camera bodies, uh, and I'll have three lenses. Generally, I shoot with two, but I, I might use a fisheye from time to time to get something a little bit different. But uh, we also, for this, we did uh, two remotes over the over the ring. Um, Mark Robinson did one up in, like, the corner of the lighting truss, and it gives it an overhead in, like, a diamond-type look. And I did one uh, straight on from the main camera angle uh, up in the lighting truss. So we had those two cameras. Uh, Mark had two cameras ringside. I had two cameras ringside. Uh, Melina was up top with uh, two camera bodies, uh, one shooting uh, like a 400 millimeter lens tight and another one doing some wide like general views of the of the arena. Uh, so we had, uh, what's that give us, like, like eight cameras around the ring uh, for the main event? Yeah. Uh, so we're normally... Normally, if it were, uh, you know, just the two of us on, we'd have, you know, three or four cameras. Uh, and, you know, you're not generally doing remotes, uh, things like that. But, you know, something like this, it was just, you know, all hands on deck and as many cameras as we could get. Yeah. It was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it's just, 
it's just a different, it's just a whole different feel. I, I mean, you know, like a big fight just has a different feel and, and you want to get behind the scenes stuff and, you know, uh, just anything different you can get. So you obviously had the fight well covered. When you were with these fighters um, during fight week, fighter meetings, press conferences, weigh-in, did you see anything from either Andy Ruiz or Anthony Joshua that made you think the fight was going to go the way it went? No, you know, I, I mean, and I don't have a lot of experience with, with, with uh, AJ. Uh, you know, this was the first fight of his that I actually photographed. Uh, but I've worked with him in the past, like at some press conferences. Um, yeah, I was with him in Times Square for Klitschko. Uh, and, uh, you know, when he fought Klitschko and he had a face on Times Square and I, I did that um, for them. And, you know, so I've been around him. Uh, but no, I mean, all fight week, he was uh, absolutely perfect. No issues whatsoever. Um, was really cooperative in good spirits. And, and uh, Andy Ruiz is just, uh, I met him for the first time in his training camp when we were doing the promo shoot for the posters and stuff. And he's just such a level-headed, nice guy. And uh, he was kind of the same way all fight week. I mean, it was just, uh, as far as fighters go, it was actually pretty, I mean, they were pretty uh, level-headed. I mean, calm. Yeah, there was nothing that would uh, dictate one thing or another. So in the third round, uh, Ruiz goes down and he somehow gets up and knocks down Joshua and takes control of the fight. Everyone in the arena, it was electric. They're losing their minds. For you, it's a little different. You can't celebrate at that moment. You can't take it in. You're probably concerned with getting the perfect shot and staying focused. Is it hard to maintain that focus when something like that is happening? Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a boxing fan, so it is at times, but I've been doing it long enough where you, you kind of just, you know, go about your job. But I mean, it was, it was, I mean, Joshua hit him with such a good combination. I mean, it was crisp. It was right on the chin. And, you know, when he went down, his arms were kind of folded under him. And I mean, I remember it. And then, yeah, I mean, you still see it, but you're just doing your job and you're trying to frame stuff out. And um, I, you know, he's such a good finisher. When Ruiz hit the canvas, I'm like, all right, here we go. And um, I couldn't even tell what happened after that because there, it was um, AJ's back was kind of, I mean, or Ruiz's back was kind of towards me and I couldn't see what kind of punch actually hit him. I went back and watched it, uh, I think on Monday. And uh, I saw it was like a little hook that kind of got him behind a ear and just, you know, sent his equilibrium all over the place. And, and that's the kind of punch that's really tough to recover from. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I will say at the end of that, and it's rare, but at the end of that third round, I just looked around the arena. I mean, everybody was standing. It was crazy. Um, it was such a good building. It really was. Uh, the atmosphere was awesome and a uh, crazy round. It was a crazy round. It was everyone's jaw was on the floor and uh, everyone was just, it was absolutely electric in the garden. You had um, Joshua knocking down Ruiz and then Ruiz by the end of it, knocking down Joshua four times. I'm sure you probably like knockdowns because that can give you an interesting angle. It can get you a great shot. After the fight was over, you look back at all your work. Were there any uh, specific moments or shots that, that you saw that really stood out? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because like on a fight like this where we have runners and editors and things like that, I actually don't even see my stuff um, until, every, you know, until the night's over. 
So it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, I, I went back and it was, uh, I have a, uh, you know, shot of Ruiz standing there like over Joshua, um, from the third round that, uh, is a really nice frame that the boxing news in the UK just ran as a cover. Um, I, I have, I, I just thought I saw so many good images. I mean, not just for myself, but other people, um, you know, other photographers, just the, um, like the celebration, like Ruiz's celebration was like so genuine. Uh, I mean, just him jumping around, like, you know, kid in a candy store. It was, uh, you don't get that all the time. And, uh, it, it was a lot of good photographs came out of that. Uh, and with, especially with Joshua standing in the background and, and Ruiz jumping all over the place. Those are probably the, the most memorable ones. Uh, the remotes, both Mark's remote and my remote uh, fired uh, all night long. So we have some really nice stuff uh, from above there. And uh, yeah, it was good. It was, I mean, photographically all around, it was a uh, really good night, you know, um, but thing when I work, you know, working for Matchroom, it took a little bit of a luster off it, but uh you know, it was just a really good photographic, uh, a really good fight to photograph. I mean, just action everywhere. I'm not sure if you were in Joshua's locker room after or someone else was, but I just wanted to get, you know, the psychology of putting, sticking a camera in someone's face after one of the hardest moments of their life. You know, Joshua was undefeated. He loses all his titles. What is that like for you when you're doing your job and you know that you have to get some type of locker room shots, you have to get something um of seeing this guy defeated is that a challenge for you yeah you know what i i we don't necessarily go into the locker rooms of the losing fighter after a fight um you know it's kind of like when you get i, I mean i'm not 100 percent in favor of it uh you know when a guy gets knocked out and you know you're sticking a microphone in his face at the end of a fight and uh you know i mean obviously if it's a fight that was stopped or, you know, a guy quits on his stool or something like that. It's a little different. But when a guy gets just, you know, completely knocked out and, you know, I, it's just, you try and be a little respectful. I mean, sometimes you have to go in there. Um, and if you do, you just try and stay out of the way. And the fighter has a, a right to refuse you entry. Um, the only dressing room I've really gone in after a fight, um, other than to get like, you know, a champion who's just won with all the belts and stuff is, um, you know, I was in Gennady's locker room after the draw and, uh, you know, the first fight and, you know, he was, he was cool. Uh, not happy with the decision and all, but he was fine with us getting some photos and stuff of him. Um, but for the most part, kind of try and stay out of a fighter's dressing room after the fight. I could see, uh, Gennady being not too happy with that draw. I could see him being, uh, <laughs> even more unhappy with, uh, losing the rematch by one point. So that's obviously got to be a tough assignment. When you look at this fight compared to all the great fights you've covered, shooting ringside, you know, you covered Gotti Ward, you covered the biggest, covered the biggest Mayweather fights, the biggest Pacquiao fights, and on and on. Where do you rank this just in terms of the, like we talked about, the energy in the arena, the magnitude of the moment, the heavyweight championship changing hands? Where do you rank this in your career? Uh, you know what? It, it's always fun. It's, it, it, it's, you know, it just happens. So, it's like so fresh in your mind that you're like, Oh my God, that's one of the best I've done. I think from an upset side of things, it's one of the biggest I've done. Um, I, nothing really 
comes to mind on that scale. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever do a fight that's better than the first Gaddy Ward fight. Uh, so that's kind of got this permanent residency as number one on my list. Um, you know, magnitude of the event, it was, was fantastic. I mean, I've done De La Hoya fights that felt like that. I've done, you know, Mayweather Mosley that, you know, had that like kind of electricity, um, you know, this was up there. I mean, the crowd, the UK fans that came over, I mean, the building was loud. Uh, it's Madison Square Garden, so that right there lends to something. When you get a when you get a sold out Madison Square Garden, it's crazy. I mean, like, you know, not a lot of fighters. I mean, really, not a lot of fighters come over and sell out the garden. I mean, Cotto would sell out the garden, you know, but you don't get that often. And when you when you do, and then to have a fight deliver, and I know everyone expected the opposite result, but um, you know, Andy Ruiz can fight, and uh, you know, it'll be interesting. It, it's, you know, I know a lot of people are upset about the, oh, no, you don't get the Wilder fight. But i got to tell you, Joshua Andy Ruiz, too, becomes a really, really big fight that people are going to want to see. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it ends up. But, I mean, that night at the Garden was good. I, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, it's got to be really high up there on my list of fights that I've shot. Just because of the magnitude of it and, and what it was and, you know, Joshua coming over here for the first time and the fact that it was an upset. And, you know, I think if it had gone the other way where, you know, even if it was going along the way it did where he knocks Ruiz down, Ruiz knocks him a couple, down a couple times and, and is, is winning the fight and Joshua comes back and stops him, I don't know if it would hold the same significance that it will because Joshua was supposed to win. Um, but I think because it was such a big upset, it ranks pretty high up there. Um, it's definitely one I'll remember. It's definitely up there. The rematch is going to be even bigger. Ed Mulholland, you can catch him ringside at the biggest boxing events in the world, representing Rutgers on his cap. Ed, thanks a lot for the time and giving us a peek into uh, your world there. Uh, thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Just a few more guests left. Next up is Lee Groves. If you've heard the name Lee Groves, that's because he is the boxing encyclopedia. He knows literally everything about boxing. And it was my pleasure to speak with Lee Groves about Joshua Ruiz. Chatting with Lee Groves, boxing writer, boxing historian. Lee, I know you've written a lot about a lot of boxing. You've seen probably more fights than anyone that I could think of. When you look at Joshua Ruiz, um, take us through that event a little bit. Let, let's start from the beginning. Did you think that Ruiz had a chance to do anything close to what he did to uh, Joshua? I thought the fight would be competitive only because uh, Ruiz, despite his physique, uh, did have above average hand speed. Uh, and... Um, you know, he he was kind of like a Buster Mathis senior in that respect. You know, you uh, you can't judge a book by its cover, but I had no living idea that he would be able to uh, to overpower uh, Joshua the way that he did. Uh, it, it was it was an enormous enormous upset, and uh, I know while I was watching it and watching Ruiz floor Joshua again and again and again. I was certainly uh, yelling. 
at my TV the way a lot of other people were. When you knew about the matchup, obviously uh, Anthony Joshua was supposed to fight Jarrell, Big Baby Miller. Um, Mm -hmm. Miller tested positive. Andy Ruiz is put in. What was your prediction before everything happened when you just heard Joshua versus Ruiz? Uh, What was your prediction at that time? I I thought that Joshua would score a uh, mid-round TKO. Um, You know, in his, in his, um, in a, when he became champion, Joshua was a uh, was an exciting knockout artist. He was aggressive. He uh, he he had he, you know coming into the fight, Joshua had the highest knockout percentage of anyone who has held a widely uh, recognized heavyweight championship. He was number one on the list, and I thought that. Um, you know, while Ruiz's hand speed might have required a couple of rounds of adjustment, uh, I thought that uh, that that big punch would eventually get to Ruiz in the middle rounds. Ruiz's body type, um, I think, really dictated a lot of people's opinions about what he could mm-hmm. do in the fight. You know, he had an amateur background. He had over a hundred wins in the amateurs. He'd been boxing for a long time. He's, mm-hmm. He was uh, only one loss as a professional. And that was a very close fight against Joseph Parker. Many people thought he won that fight. Right. My question for you is, you know, the way he looks, um, there's been training footage that, that has come out since he's obviously a hard worker. So mm-hmm. do you think the way he looks is, is that based on diet? You know, his, his dad said he eats a uh, and some Snickers before every fight, and he's a heavyweight, so obviously he doesn't have to cut and make weight. Do you think his physique is natural, just genetic, and, and you know, he's a hard worker, or is maybe the diet's not on place? What do you make of, of the way he looks? Uh, I, I really can't say. It, it may be genetics, uh, but, uh, you know, we, it, it, may, it may well be genetics, uh, you know, but... It's obvious that that Andy Ruiz had talent. He had a boxing background. Uh, he has physical gifts. They're just not readily apparent once you look at him. But uh, but but everyone who has watched him fight would say that yes, he he is a, a talented fighter. But uh, really, the uh, the physique is is his best disguise. You, you, uh, it definitely was, and that that colored a lot of people's opinions. As to uh, as to his chances, um, not only that, but the fact that he fought just 42 days earlier against uh, Alexander Dimitrenko, who at six foot seven and ha- he had similar height and reach to uh, to Anthony Joshua and a somewhat f- uh, similar physique to Anthony Joshua, and Andy Ruiz ran right through him. He scored a fifth round TKO. Uh, before the fight, I did some research about the uh, shortest turnarounds for heavyweight title challengers uh, before, you know, in the last 50 years. And Andy Ruiz's 42 days was the fifth shortest turnaround for a heavyweight title challenger. And the four guys who had even shorter breaks between fights, they were all knocked out by the champion. And, uh, you know, you have Jeremy Williams. He fought 25 days before he fought Henry Akinwande, and he was knocked out in three rounds. Uh, 
Francesca or um, Daniel Edward Neto uh, of Argentina fought uh, Francesco Damiani for the WBO title 35 days after his last fight. He was knocked out in two rounds. Uh, Obed Sullivan challenged uh, Vitaly Klitschko uh, 35 days, you know, after his most previous fight, and he was knocked out at nine. And of course, famously, Burt Cooper uh, fought Evander Holyfield just 36 days after uh, his last fight, and he came the closest uh, to scoring that uh, that victory when he hurt Holyfield, but Holyfield rallied and stopped him. So not only was uh, Ruiz at a deficit in terms of body type, history was also working against him because he was a short-notice opponent. And then you throw in the fact that uh, this was um, Anthony Joshua's U.S. debut. It was highly celebrated. It was at the Mecca of Boxing, Madison Square Garden. Um, You know, he had uh, deficits not only in body type, but in height and reach and punching power, supposedly. Uh, Andy Ruiz had a big mountain to climb. And to the world's astonishment, he conquered that mountain. And now look at where he is. Good for him. You know, good it, for him. It, when you put it in that perspective, it's it's crazy to think he, he just came off of another fight and history was against him in that way. And it, like you said, it just makes it even more remarkable what he was able to pull up. With his um, physique and his build that he has, just in a historical sense, have there been other fighters who have looked like that and have had success? I mean, you know, the, the one name that obviously keeps coming up is Butterbean. Um, I think Butterbean mm-hmm. was over 400 pounds. I think he was a bigger man. And, and to my understanding, his specialty was shorter fights, four-round mm-hmm. fights, um, yeah. because he was a large man, but the stamina wasn't necessarily there. Um, so were there, you know, in a historical sense, have there been people who have been successful who don't have a perfect body? Uh, there, there have been, uh, the, the one that I, that comes to mind immediately was of course, Buster Mathis senior, uh, his son, uh, Buster Mathis jr. Um, he, uh, he had some success. He didn't have the, the body beautiful, uh, but for a couple of rounds against Mike Tyson, he, um, he, uh, performed pretty well until of course he got hit in the mouth by Mike Tyson, bringing up that famous, uh, saying, Everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Uh, there, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are some, uh, some fighters in history that do fit that pattern. And, uh, of course, that's, uh, you know, with the heavyweight division being what it is, it's unlimited poundage. You can, you can go as far as your ability takes you. With Joshua coming into this fight, um, I believe the the punch stats uh, comparisons of his of his previous fights show that he was actually trending towards throwing less power punches and more jabs, almost taking a yes. more boxing approach, less brawling. And mm-hmm. I think it's it, we've seen this in his previous fights. When he does hurt his opponent, though, he does open up and go for the kill. And mm-hmm. usually, I think the twenty plus times that's happened in the past. Um, his opponent is so out of it or doesn't have the will of an Andy Ruiz that they succumb to that and they get knocked out. That obviously was not the case uh, on last Saturday night. Could you take us a little bit through that third round sequence where Joshua knocks down Ruiz Mm -hmm. and 
we're talking about the odds being stacked against Ruiz. At that moment, I mean, I don't think there was anyone who thought he could ever come back from that. Um, just take yeah. us through that moment and then what you saw in that third round. What I saw in that third round was is that uh, Josh, Joshua nailed Ruiz with a perfect left hook to the jaw. It was short and compact. It drove Ruiz to the canvas. Um, I, I thought at that point, okay, you know, Andy, Andy fought a really good fight up until that point, but now the, the, the mountain is about to uh, cave in on him. He got up, and when Joshua moved in for the kill, that's when Andy uh, nailed him with a counterpunch. That's where his really good hand speed and his uh, his calm under duress kick came into play. Uh, when you know Joshua left himself open, Ruiz found the perfect punch to nail him and drive him to the canvas, and that's when. Wow, you know, I could not believe what I was seeing. And um and unlike Ruiz who got up pretty clear-eyed, Joshua was genuinely hurt because um the punches that put him down for the first time were high on the head, uh where your temple is, where your equilibrium is. And really an argument could be made that Joshua never recovered from those first uh, from those two punches that that put him down the first time. Um, from that point, you know, I, I remember going on Facebook after the uh, the third round knockdown, and I put put down a note. Uh, it, it looks like Joshua just saw a hundred million dollars flash before his eyes, uh, like the phrase uh, "your life flashing before your eyes." And really, that that kind of dove in retrospect, that kind of dovetails into uh, into the stat that you brought up. That, that Joshua had been fighting more cautiously in recent fights, as if he was protecting himself from a loss as opposed to gunning for the victory and being the exciting fighter that that, that drew 90,000 people to, uh, to Wembley, that drew 70,000 to Millennium, Millennium Stadium. Uh, he was fighting not to lose, and he was trying to protect himself for the eventual big money fight unification with Deontay Wilder. And um, he fought up until the point where he scored the knockdown against Ruiz. He was fighting cautiously, but then when he nailed Ruiz, he decided, okay, this is the time to cash in. And when he did, that's when the fight turned. And certainly that, uh, Ruiz went down, he came up, knocked Joshua down, and it seemed like his equilibrium was off for the rest of the night. Ruiz also capitalized on that and threw tons of combination punching. And I'm just wondering from all the fighters that you've seen, you know, looking at numbers, crunching numbers, combination punching like that at the heavyweight level, have you seen anything like that? Uh, You know, uh, power combinations, Mike Tyson was really good with throwing power combinations. Uh, throwing speed, you know, uh, Joe Lewis was uh, was an excellent combination puncher. Um, you know, uh, you know, Evander Holyfield was a very good combination puncher, and of course, um, you know, uh, Floyd Patterson, Muhammad Ali, uh, they were uh, they were blessed with uh, extremely good hand speed. Um, there there have been a number of heavyweights in history who have um, 
who have blended a tremendous uh, tremendous hand speed and foot speed with uh, with the size and the bulk. And I think it, that still plays to the point that the reason it feels so remarkable is because none of them had the body type or build that Andy Ruiz did. And to see a, right. a big man move that way, um, to have those, you know, that kind of combination punching is just, is just astonishing. So the seventh round is when it ended, you know, by the end of the night, Ruiz had yeah. actually knocked down Joshua, uh, four different times. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the fight, it's, Maybe a little bit of controversy. I think most people are pretty happy with the stoppage. Um, Mm -hmm. Joshua's mouthpiece gets knocked out. And Mm -hmm. I guess my first question to you is, you know, we all remember the famous shot of Mike Tyson trying to get his mouthpiece after being knocked down by Buster Douglas. Mm -hmm. What is the rule there with the mouthpiece? If, If Joshua says he's okay, but he doesn't have his mouthpiece in, is he allowed to continue? What is the exact uh, rule at that moment? Uh, well, you know, the, the, the conventional way that uh, the situation is handled is that the referee finds the mouthpiece, has it washed uh, off by the corner man, and, uh, and be reinserted in its mouth. Uh, it's a, it was a safety thing. But beginning with uh, Diego Corrales against uh, Jose Luis Castillo uh, in 2007, I believe, uh, Castillo or uh, Corrales kind of took advantage of that, of that um, you know, uh, conventional wisdom, and gave himself additional time to recover by spitting out the mouthpiece and letting the the, the corner wash off the mouthpiece and using the extra fifteen to twenty seconds for additional recovery time. And because Corrales got away with it. Uh, other fighters started using this tactic whenever they get hurt. Uh, they know that uh, that the referee will stop the action and that therefore they would get more recovery time. And I kind of think that was what Joshua was hoping would happen with his mouthpiece. He was badly hurt. Uh, he sort of expected the referee to call time out and, uh, and have the mouthpiece washed off. But Michael Griffin was as, as uh, aware of this history as, uh, as, as you, you know, they, they, their referees have gotten more wise to this tactic. And sometimes, from time to time, uh, when they think that the fighter is sort of gaming the system, they allow the fight to continue without the mouthpiece. And uh, I think that's what – I think Joshua was expecting one thing, and when that didn't happen – that caused the hesitancy in his actions, uh, and and that may, that delay may have led to Griffin interpreting uh, Joshua as not wanting to continue, even though he could be heard saying yes when asked if he wanted to still fight. Wow, that's really interesting. So you're saying that it's a referee's discretion; he could just continue the fight and have one of the fighters not have a mouthpiece in. Uh, I've seen it from time to time. It's not a hard and fast rule, but I, I do think that more often than not, the referee will stop and have the mouthpiece washed off and uh, and have it replaced. But I think I have seen referees, um, you know, from time to time, sort of interpret uh, whether a fighter is purposefully spitting out the mouthpiece right. and spotting that not give him what he wants. Right. So more, more so if the referee feels like the fighter is doing it to buy time. 
Um, so, you know, at the end of the fight, like we said, the wave off is most people are saying they're pretty happy with the way the, the stoppage happened. The mm-hmm. referee asked Joshua, is he okay? Joshua said yes, yes, but his body language wasn't great. He had his kind of arms on the, the ropes mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and he looked slightly uh, frustrated uh, when the ref called it off. My question is, um, from a historical sense, um, people, the conventional wisdom is, if you are the champion, you should mm-hmm. maybe get the benefit of the doubt. Go, you know, have a chance to go out on your shield if you're going to mm-hmm. be giving up all your titles. Has that been the way it's played out in the past in terms of the champion having that moment to go out on his shield versus the referee making a decision in big heavyweight championship fights in the past? I think for the most part uh, that that has uh, that has played out. Uh, it's sort of an extension to the old rule that um, you know uh, back in the days before around uh, the 1970s, 1980s. Um, in order for a champion to lose his championship, he almost had to be killed in order to, uh, in order to lose his championship. And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that truism has, uh, has kind of faded over time. Um, in, in, in that, uh, there's more of an emphasis of safety, uh, rather than, uh, letting a, a champion go out on a shield. Um, it really goes from fight to fight, but uh, if it's a really big, big fight, uh, I, I kind of think that, uh, that 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 rule still is in effect, but less so than in previous years. After the fight, Joshua went over to Ruiz. He was a good sport. He had a big mm-hmm. smile on his face, congratulating him, giving him all the credit. Obviously, as boxing fans, we their theories are are everywhere. People are saying that Joshua had a panic attack in the locker room before the fight, something that he's denied. One thing that is true is that every single one of his fights up to this point was in the UK. And this was the first time mm-hmm. fighting in America, fighting in New York. And that may not seem like a big deal, but there were changes made. He had different regulations about, you couldn't have Gatorade in the locker room, maybe something mm-hmm. that he's used to um, his body clock, no matter who he is, is going to be different. Um, mm-hmm. It's just going to be a different routine. When you look at what happened on, on last Saturday night, was do any of those things play a factor, you think? Or was this just a case of Andy Ruiz uh, stepping up to the plate and, and you know, causing one of the uh, biggest upsets in the history of boxing? I think, all, I think both things are correct. Uh, it was obvious that um, – that Anthony Joshua was not fighting in familiar territory. You know, he wanted to make his mark in the United States, and there are things that you have to adjust to when you're fighting away from home. And, uh, you know, I, one fighter who was very um, sensitive to that kind of thing was Carl Frotch. He, you, you have him in Nottingham, and Carl Frotch was unbeatable. But you get him away from home, and he's somewhat of a different fighter. Although, you know, he won away from home, but he's not the same fighter. Perhaps Joshua is the same way. Um, so there, there were adjustments that he had to make. And uh, but uh, at the same time, Andy Ruiz, he was playing with house money. Nobody thought. Very few people. I, I don't want to say nobody because there have been some people who have said. Yes, I predicted that Andy Ruiz would win the fight, but they were in the vast minority. Virtually no one thought that Andy Ruiz would be able to do what he did 
and he had the the talent, uh, the uh, the sense of opportunity, the timing, everything that he needed to take advantage of the situation that was before him. Um, you know that I, I I do think that both things are correct. That yes, Joshua may have been negatively affected by the change in scenery. But uh, Andy Ruiz also took advantage of a of a, a once in a lifetime opportunity, or well, I guess in his case a twice in a lifetime opportunity, since this was a second challenge for a championship. But this came out of the blue, and Andy Ruiz, you know, God bless him, he did everything that he needed to do uh, when the situation was presented before him. If there were people who uh, picked Andy Ruiz before the fight, I hope that. They bought a betting ticket because yeah. uh, I'm sure that would have paid out quite nicely. Um, when you look at the state of the heavyweight division now after this fight, I personally think it's actually much more interesting. I think there's a new yeah. player, um, and I think there's now four top guys, obviously mm-hmm. Ruiz and Joshua and then Wilder and Fury. And I think any of those guys fighting each other is interesting. As it is, Wilder and Fury have their matchup set for January or February of, of 2020. Um, right. Ruiz and Joshua are going to pick, uh, are going to have a rematch. Yeah. What is your take on the heavyweight division and what is your pick on the eventual Joshua Ruiz rematch and the Wilder Fury, uh, fight coming up? Well, you know, the heavyweight division in the post Klitschko era is, uh, is, is alive and well, uh, I, you know, there, there are a lot of people that criticize the Klitschkos for the way that they fought. They were very successful, they were very effective, and they were very dominant. I, I don't think that you could ask much more of, uh, of, a, of a pair of heavyweight champions than uh, Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko. They did their job, and they did their job well. Uh, and, and they were just so dominant that, uh, that people were kind of bored with the heavyweight division. But then... Tyson Fury came along and uh, upset uh, Vladimir Klitschko, and uh, from that point forward, uh, you have you have Wilder, you have uh, now you have Ruiz, you have a uh, you know uh, Jarrell Big Baby Miller. Despite the failed drug test, I don't know what what his situation is going to be going forward. But if if one person is kicking himself uh, after what happened with Ruiz and, and Joshua, it's Jarrell Miller. Because uh, he he uh, is just as big as as uh, Joshua, he would have been heavier. He had just as much punch volume. He's probably uh, as as hard a hitter. Uh, there was an opportunity lost for Jarrell Miller, but uh, you know you have uh, Dillian White. You have uh, you have a whole host of uh, of great character, not just good fighters, but great characters that uh, that really kind of make the heavyweight division shine in a way that we haven't seen since uh, the days of Lewis Tyson, Holyfield, Morrison, Foreman. Um, you know, it's a very, very interesting weight class. Uh, as far as the, um, as the rematch with uh, Ruiz and Joshua, it's going to take place uh, probably in England, overseas. They're, they're going to have to pay him very well in order to... Uh, have the, the three belt champion go to the opponent's home ground. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that the money is going to be out there for him. Um, Andy Ruiz, I, I heard was installed uh, as a three to one underdog in the rematch. Um, boy, I got to tell you, it's, it's a, it's um, 
it's a very interesting fight, and I, you, I'm surely going to put a lot more thought into uh, into predicting this fight, uh, the rematch, than uh, than I thought. Uh, than, than I invested uh, in predicting the first fight. Uh, it, it's very intriguing. You, uh, Andy Ruiz showed a mental strength that, um, you know, that, uh, that many people didn't think that he had. He'll surely carry that mental strength into the rematch uh, because, you know, in, in, in Madison Square Garden, the first fight, uh, the crowd was against him. You know, uh, there were a lot of Brits there cheering for him, um, and, and and that's going to be the case in the rematch. But Andy Ruiz has shown himself to be a, a, a true player in the game, and, um, you know, you can't count him out based on what he did in the first fight. If, you, if he could do it once, he can do it again. I, I completely agree. I think it'll it'll be who can make what adjustments. Um, yes. What will it be like if Joshua is fighting back in his hometown? Will he be back in his, his element? And what mm-hmm. kind of defensive adjustments will he make? I also yeah. think um, the Wilder Fury rematch will be very interesting because, yes. you know, there's a conventional wisdom that a boxer slash counterpuncher has the advantage in a rematch because he's learned more from his opponent versus you know, the, the one punch guy, like a wilder, but the mm-hmm. fact that it, the second knockdown in that fight happened in the 12th round may have meant that wilder actually found out how to get an opening. So I think that's, that's also extremely interesting. I wanted to ask you from a historical sense, you know, the, the way this is all playing out as of right now, Andy Ruiz holds three of the belts, which he just got from Anthony Joshua, the WBA, mm-hmm. the IBF and the WBO that, Third belt belongs to, uh, that, sorry, that fourth belt, the WBC, belongs to Deontay Wilder. And then the lineal championship belongs to Tyson Fury. Like you mentioned, he, he outboxed uh, Vladimir Klitschko. Right. The, my question for you is, just from a historical sense, you know, let's say, um, you know, for example, Rui, the winner of Joshua Ruiz fights the winner of uh, Fury Wilder. All the belts and the lineal championship on the line. Mm-hmm. Has that ever happened before where there was a heavyweight champion who had every single belt plus the lineal, lineal belt in recent memory? Um, well, in the four belt era, I, I don't think so. But, uh, you know, really the concept of lineal champion is kind of um, it's kind of frayed because if you go, there is no line that goes back to John L. Sullivan. There's no line that goes back to Gene Tunney or Rocky Marciano or. Um, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, it, it's more like the owner of the line of succession. And, uh, you know, right now, Tyson Fury, uh, you know, he's the man who beat the man who was the owner of the line of succession. Um, you know, you have fights in history like, um, like, uh, Tyson versus Spinks. Uh, Spinks was stripped of the IBF title because he chose to fight, uh, Jerry Cooney. Uh, instead of fighting Tony Tucker, the IBS number one contender uh, in the HBO heavyweight tournament. And, um, you know, Tucker and Buster Douglas fought for the vacant belt. Tucker won it. Tyson knocked out Tucker to win the three, uh, three um, widely recognized belts. And uh, Spinks, because he hadn't been dethroned in the ring and because he beat the man who beat the man, which was Larry Holmes, um, 
he they came into the fight with uh, Tyson owning all of the alphabet belts, but Spinks being the uh, the man who beat the man, and uh, that's why their their particular uh, about 1988 held so much historical significance. Uh, there is another fight in heavyweight history similar uh, when Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought in 1971. Um, Muhammad Ali was uh, stripped of his belts for not uh, ex- going into the uh, into the military during Vietnam War. He was he was the man who beat the man, Sonny Liston, and uh, and Joe Frazier and Jimmy Ellis. Uh, Ellis won the WBA heavyweight tournament. And Joe Frazier defeated Buster Mathis Sr. for the New York uh, version of the title, the New York State Athletic Commission, which which held very much power back then. Um, and and um, Ellis and Frazier fought for the uh, for the uh, you know the the alphabet belt, and Frazier knocked out Ellis in the fifth round in order to win that belt. But Joe Frazier wasn't. Uh, seemed to be the real heavyweight champion of the world until he met Muhammad Ali. And that's why that particular fight held such a terrific uh, historical significance. It was two undefeated men with a legitimate claim to the heavyweight championship fighting each other. So uh, that, that was a, a really unique set of circumstances. So yes, there have been uh, times in which you have a guy with all of the hardware going up a guy going up against a guy who had the mythology of the man who beat the man fighting each other. And that's what, um, if Tyson Fury, um, that's what Tyson Fury holds. He holds the mythical, you know, his claim is mythical and not physical. And the man who has the three belts, Andy Ruiz, and if he gets the fourth belt against Wilder, Eventually, um, he, you know, the man who would have the four belts fighting Fury, that would be a similar circumstance. Right. It's, it's a very interesting time because you have Ruiz versus Joshua set up and you have Wilder Fury ready to go. Yeah. So in theory, if Wilder beats Fury, he has not right. only the WBC, but then he has that mythical lineal yes. championship, like you said, or vice right. versa. Fury could mm-hmm. have those. Same thing going with the Ruiz Joshua winner. They have those three belts. So right. it's almost like we are, it's an exciting time in the heavyweight division because we're almost one step away from that absolute unified, um, you know, undisputed lineal yeah. champion. And so it's, it's a very uh, interesting and exciting time. So just, just to wrap it all up, you know, there's obviously been so many upsets in boxing history, but this, this is definitely um, in the top. Uh, of the list, you know, the names, uh, Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas has of course come up. Uh, Lennox Lewis, the first fight against Hasim Rahman has come up. So what, where do you, uh, rank Andy Ruiz's huge upset win against Anthony Joshua when in a historical sense? Well, I, I remember, uh, in the first blush of, uh, of, of seeing what I had just seen, I went on Facebook and I asked, is Ruiz Joshua a bigger heavyweight championship up, upset than Douglas Tyson? And for the reasons that I had listed earlier, a case could be made for it. But, um, you know, upon further reflection, I believe that, that it belongs in the top 10, maybe the lower end of the top 10. Uh, you, 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 of course, Douglas Tyson 
uh, ranks number one just for the sheer shock value of it. Mike Tyson was the baddest man on the planet. He was 38 and 0. He was defending his championship for the 10th time. He was uh, he was seen as an uh, unbelievable, indestructible force of nature going up against a man who had a history of not fulfilling his potential. And of course, we all know what happened. Tyson wasn't exactly in the best of shape. He was dropped by Greg Page uh, in a sparring in a public sparring session shortly before the fight. Uh, Douglas uh, was coming uh, coming into the fight in the best shape of his life. One, it's in a lifetime shape. He also had the height and reach advantage, and he had the skills to know how to use them. It was just a, a whole perfect storm of circumstances that led to that historic upset. But there have been others in history that uh, that have shook up the world. Uh, for instance, Leon Spinks uh, fighting Muhammad Ali for the first time, an eight-fight pro or a seven-fight pro going up against the absolute legend Muhammad Ali, an aging one, but still a prohibitive favorite. And uh, Leon Spinks shook up the world by uh, defeating him by a split decision, which I think should have been unanimous. Uh, there, there are others in history, such as um, the first Holyfield Mike Tyson fight. Uh, I remember, um, I remember a story before that fight that a cable company, you know, Mike Tyson was such in a prohibitive favorite against Evander Holyfield at the time. Uh, it opened up as a twenty-five to one fight. Uh, that one cable company tried to have a pay-per-round format. Uh, in that they thought that Tyson was going to destroy Holyfield in such short order that in order to have people who paid for the fight not feel that they were cheated, it would be $5 per round that the main event lasted. So if if the fight had gone one round, it would only be worth $5. Two rounds for $10, 15 for three, up until uh, up until $50. And uh, that that cable company was not allowed to uh, to do that. But the fight went 11 rounds and uh, Holyfield was such an earth shaking upset. You know, this was at the time in which uh, there were questions surrounding the state of Holyfield's heart. They thought that uh, that uh, he not 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 his courage, but his actual physical heart. There were some people that thought he was going to die in the ring. But um you know, and, and there, that was another massive, massive surprise. Uh, others that come to mind uh, include uh, George Foreman, 45-year-old George Foreman, knocking out with one punch uh, a 20-something Michael Moore to become the heavyweight champion 20 years after he lost the uh, initially lost the championship to Muhammad Ali. Uh, other ones are uh, Lennox Lewis's twin defeats to uh, Hasim Rockman and Oliver McCall. Um, Corey Sanders's knockout of Vladimir Klitschko in two rounds was a major surprise. Uh, if you want to go back, uh, go back a little farther in history. Uh, in 1935, Max Baer lost his championship to the Cinderella Man, uh, J- James J. Braddock, and. Uh, you know, Clay, uh, Cassius Clay knocking out Sonny Liston in the seventh in the seventh round. Um, and here's another one that's kind of forgotten. You know, uh, Michael Bent 
uh, fighting Tommy Morrison for the WBO heavyweight title. Um, for Morrison, it was supposed to be a tune-up for a future like unification show down with Lennox Lewis. Uh, I think that the Morrison stood to make $8 million if he had beaten Michael Bent. But Michael Bent scores three knockdowns before Morrison's home fans in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and wins the WBO championship in one round. Uh, that that was an, uh, an unbelievable upset. And then, of course, uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, Rumble in the Jungle upset against George Foreman. Uh, you know, people recall that George Foreman not only beat the two men that had beaten Muhammad Ali, but he knocked them out in two rounds, uh, Joe Frazier and Ken Norton. And, uh, you know, there were some people that were questioning not whether Ali would win or lose, but whether he would live or die. Foreman was that much of a monster. And you could say that Ali's victory over Foreman was an even bigger upset than the one against Liston because against Liston, Ali was the the, the bigger, uh, you know, the taller, the rangier, the younger, the faster uh, fighter. And against Foreman, he was 10 years older uh, than he was then. Uh, he was fighting a bigger, stronger, heavier hitting version of Sonny Liston. He was younger on top of that. And, uh, and and like I said before, he uh, defeated the two men that uh, beat Muhammad Ali in very short order. Uh, and and for Ali to do what he did and to win by a knockout on top of everything else, it was an amazing uh, twist of fate in heavyweight championship history. So, yes, there have been uh, some really good upsets over the years. And I think that Ruiz Joshua fits into the top 10, but maybe in the lower end of the top 10, considering that um, Joshua was considered a bit chinny. He went down against Vladimir Klitschko and that he had fought more cautiously in recent fights, uh, sort of setting a stage of vulnerability, potential vulnerability down the line, but not against a guy like Andy Ruiz. It, It was a surprise that Ruiz was the one who cashed in. But there was a little bit of question surrounding Anthony Joshua going into the fight. Wow, that's that's really great stuff. And if anyone wants to know more about uh, Michael Ben's story, there's a great documentary on Netflix called Losers, uh, telling his his journey. He was knocked out in his first fight, and then his comeback. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a great story. And also, I think that pricing model you you mentioned is is very interesting. I think you know yeah. it's funny nowadays as boxing fans we're getting you ready to uh, get new subscription models and where there's different pricing. I think a, a per round uh, pricing model could maybe work in, in today's day and age. Um, but that's, that's great information, Lee. And I think the uh, best thing to take from all that is that we were lucky enough to witness a fight in recent memory. That is at least in the conversation of all the other great upsets that you brought up. So mm-hmm. Lee, uh, Lee Groves, you are the boxing historian. You may be the absolute boxing historian, a brilliant author. Thank you so much for the time, and thanks for putting everything we saw with Joshua Ruiz into a historical perspective. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for reaching out to me, and it was a pleasure speaking with you. You know me. I, if you want to talk boxing history, I'll, drop, I'll talk boxing history at the drop of a hat, and I will hang in as many rounds as necessary. <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks so much, Lee. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you.
Lee Groves can certainly go rounds. Another guy who can go rounds is Corey Erdman. He is our final guest, and he is up next. I am speaking with Corey Erdman. He's a boxing commentator, a writer, a historian who works behind the scenes with the zone. Corey, you were at the Garden last Saturday. We all witnessed the insane upset win by Andy Ruiz versus Anthony Joshua. It was shocking. Let me ask you this. Going into that fight, did you think Ruiz had a chance? I didn't, and and I feel bad for having thought that. Because in, in retrospect, and of course it's easy to look back and kind of reason with the results and study the results and, and find reasons why we should have thought something different, you know, when something unexpected happens. But really, you know, looking back at it, the only reason I felt that way was just because of the way that Andy Ruiz looked. And and that's unfair. And and really when we're looking at it and the reaction to what happened and why people are so surprised, it's it's all down to optics. And I wrote about this for uh, for boxing scene the other day. But if Andy Ruiz looked like your standard fair heavyweight, and he had abs, and you know he was just a, a regular six foot two heavyweight, if he had the same build but his musculature was a little bit different, I don't think we would be thinking about this the same way. And I don't even think that the odds necessarily would have been uh, made the same way either. I, I think that this kind of came down to looking at a guy who didn't look like he was supposed to be a top-level athlete, much less a, a top-flight heavyweight. And we kind of made the assumptions from there. And so, you know, I, I've kind of had to, to wrestle with that, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, because we should have at least given him a chance, even if we didn't think he was going to win the fight. Right. We knew his uh, amateur background, over 100 amateur wins. We know the resume he's had. He, he had a very close fight with Joseph Parker in Parker's hometown. And a lot of people think that Ruiz actually won that fight. So we knew what he had capable, um, what he was capable of. And I think, I think you're right. If he looked differently, we would have all been looking at this matchup differently. But I think it was the fact that he looked the way he looked. And he's also colorful and he's playing into that persona. He has the Snickers everywhere he goes. Um, he's making light of it. So I, I think that all played into it. And it was almost the perfect storm of, and he was a, re, a late replacement for big baby Miller. So I think it was, it was all of that for all of us to kind of overlook that this was even possible. So let me, let me ask you, you know, we we're talking about his physique. I've seen videos now popping up of him in the gym. He can actually move for a big man. And we know, you know, reports are coming out that he's always been a hard worker. He trains hard. He's been boxing for a long time since he was a kid. So the muscle memory's there. Why does he look the way he looks? You know, if he's training hard, why does he kind of look that way? Well, I mean, I, I do not have a medical background, so I can't explain it. But I can, in general, in general terms, explain it by just saying that people are built differently. And, you know, like I, I, I challenge anyone who is still sitting at home kind of giggling about the way that Andy Ruiz looks to go and not, forget trying to fight Andy Ruiz. Obviously, Andy Ruiz would knock virtually everyone in the world out. But go and try and beat Andy Ruiz at any kind of thing in the gym. Because as you mentioned, we've now seen some of the kind of strength and conditioning circuits that the guy does. Clearly, the guy runs every single day of his life. So, you know, go out and do anything in the gym or outside conditioning wise 
and see if you can keep up with Andy Ruiz. I think the bottom line is this is a guy who, you know, wasn't blessed with the kind of body that, say, Anthony Joshua was blessed with. But he works extremely hard, and maybe he, you know, eats a few more calories than he burns sometimes. But I, I think ultimately he started behind the eight ball with not necessarily the, you know, the ideal physique or the ideal metabolism. But in terms of athleticism, he's right there with anyone else. I mean, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say that, you know, linemen in football aren't athletic. We all understand that those guys are phenomenal athletes. But if we see a boxer enter the ring looking any way other than basically a pro wrestler or a bodybuilder would look, we immediately assume they don't know what they're doing. And obviously, I mean, this was the perfect illustration of why that's not true. Yeah, I think it was, uh, he said his father used to give him a steak and Snickers before every fight. So when you hear stories like that, <laughs> you see someone who looks the way they look, you're going to think a certain thing. So let's, let's look at the fight a little bit. You know, we're obviously going to get to the knockdowns and the upset, but early on, one, you know, round one, round two, Joshua has been known to actually be someone who feels out his opponents. He's not like Wilder where he's necessarily going for the kill right away, just trying to land a right hand. He does feel out his opponents from time to time. Did round one, round two, did you see anything or did you, was it kind of going the way you expected it to go? Well, even before round one, there, there just seemed like there was something off about Anthony Joshua. And, you know, we were kind of hearing whispers because you and I were at the fight and, and we were standing beside one another watching the fight. But people uh, in and around the fight had heard whispers all week from Eddie Hearn talking about, and they weren't, they weren't premeditated excuses, but he was talking about how things were different for AJ leading up to this fight because he had, he had commitments, he had more press to do, you know, he had to kind of travel around the city and, and make all those TV hits. And then when he got to his locker room, the New York State Athletic Commission allows or doesn't allow certain things that AJ and other fighters might be used to. I, I think, for example, he couldn't have Gatorade in the locker room. Uh, Andy Ruiz couldn't have a Snickers bar either, so I guess it's fair game. Um, but they, they were like, so you heard that, and then when it comes time for Joshua to enter the ring, he's late coming out for his entrance. When he comes out, he he doesn't seem all that jacked up to be in MSG, even though the crowd's going wild. And then during his introductions, he's just kind of slumped in the corner and chewing on his mouthpiece a little bit. And I, I just got the sense that for whatever reason, Joshua, his, his temperament wasn't the same that I had seen it in the past. And even in rounds one and two, he just looked a little bit, I don't want to say lethargic, but a little bit more laid back in the ring in rounds one and two. And, and certainly even throughout the fight, even after he got hurt, but I could, I, I got the sense in rounds one and two that he was behaving a little bit differently. And I chalked it up to maybe him thinking, ah, well, this is going to be a challenge. So I didn't think anything of it, but then as I'm sure we're going to get to, then round three happens. And then you start to re-ask those questions all over. And yeah, we'll get to that in one sec, but do you think that, the reason for that was, you know, he's fought Anthony Joshua. That is, has fought every single fight in the UK. He's that's his comfort zone. This is his first time fighting in America, fighting in New York. His whole routine is off. His um, his body clock is off. And not to give him excuses, but that has to make a difference when you've done something every single time, twenty plus times, the exact same way, and had success with it. And now you're making that change. That has to make a difference. 
Do you think it was that, or do you think it was like the stuff we've been talking about, looking at his opponent? It's a late opponent. It's a, it's someone they brought in late who, you know, he's, he's obviously going to not put his best work in, in the, in training camp because he may be overlooking this guy a little bit. Do you think it's one or the other, or do you think it's a little bit of both? I think it could be a combination of a lot of things. It could be none of the things. I mean, if you're looking for reasons why, I, I think that, you know, as you just pointed out, like there are lots of directions that you can point, and one of them may be the unfamiliarity, like with the environment. But you know, Andy Ruiz is from California. He's although it's not quite as drastic. He's switching time zones too to come to the fight. Um, as we mentioned, all the added commitments that AJ had, his training camp, as you mentioned, with the opponent change really, I mean, this was kind of a third opponent that he was preparing for at different times. First it was Jerome Miller. Then for a while, we really thought it was going to be Luis Ortiz and he probably was starting to think about how to fight King Kong and then ultimately has to fight Andy Ruiz. So I'm sure that wasn't ideal for him. And then everything on fight day being a little bit different. um, Listen, I think that combined with maybe not thinking that Ruiz was as serious a challenger as he was, if you put those things together, that could definitely be a formula that would create a fighter that looked as off as Joshua did in the ring. But, I mean, only Anthony Joshua could tell you, and everything that he's putting out there now is suggesting that he was 100%, everything was fine, and he just lost. So, I mean, those are his words, but uh, if – if we couldn't speculate, I don't know that we'd have a job. So let's, let's just keep it up. There's, there's definitely a lot of speculation out there. There was speculation that he had a panic attack before he went out, which he denied. And he's done a good job of not making excuses and basically saying that he just needs to do better next time, which I think is, is good for him and also good to give credit to Andy Ruiz for, for what he did. So round three, it, the Anthony Joshua knocks down Ruiz. It's, almost how everyone expected it to go. And you expect Anthony Joshua to now go for the finish as he's used to doing. He opens up and Ruiz had other plans. So my, my question for you is when Ruiz came back right there, getting up off the canvas and knocking down Joshua so quickly, what was your reaction at that moment? And also, what else have you seen that in a fight? You see guys trade knockdowns, but very rarely is it at that stage and so immediate one after the other. Yeah, well, I mean, my reaction was, uh, you know, it's a shock when you start physically grabbing people around you. Like, <laughs> I remember grabbing Adnan Verk and kind of like hustling over to you and Sugar Ray at that point. And like, you know that something incredible is happening when you feel the need to like, you know, embrace other people around you. So I was definitely shocked. Uh, but, you know, it, it pointed to a weakness that Joshua has, and that's that if you punch with him, you can have a lot of success. And Ruiz said, even going into the fight, that that was going to be his game plan. And the moment he got knocked down, Joshua kind of inadvertently walked himself into a position where he wasn't going to be successful. In, in going for the kill, he walked himself into an area where Ruiz was going to beat him every single time. And that's on the inside because Andy Ruiz has faster hands. He's going to beat him to the punch. No fault of his own. He did what you should do. Once you knock a guy down the way that you knocked him out, uh, sorry, the, the way that he had knocked him down with that left hook is go and try and finish the fight. But he also walked into 
a world of danger that ultimately he never really recovered from. And no, I completely agree. And then to the second part of the question, have you seen that in other fights that you can remember? I mean, I'm sure I have. I'm trying to think of uh, like an instance where it happens so immediately where I, I guess there, well, if you look back at like Prince Nassim and Kevin Kelly, you know, the, the fourth round, I believe Kelly scores a knockdown on Naz. It was a knockdown basically because his glove touches the canvas, but you still, even in that moment knew that Naz was the one who was in control and it didn't take long for him to close the show. Then thereafter, I mean, that, that was a little bit of a different kind of fight because Naz got floored early. And so the momentum kind of swung a couple times but it, it was it was definitely round three of Joshua uh, and, and Ruiz was definitely one of the more dramatic rounds that we've seen in recent memory. And even if I do lodge my brain and think of others, I think they're, they're few and far between. No, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, a couple of things that came to mind for me was Sergio Martinez and Paul Williams in their first fight traded knockdowns. I think it was in round one. Um, Andre Berto and Victor Ortiz in their uh, first uh, in their first fight traded knockdowns. Um, but again, a lot, you know, a lot of these were, there was moments in between it, it, It's hard to ima- remember when it was so immediate and it was, the fight was going so much the way we expected. It's almost as if, you know, uh, a few weeks ago when Brazil got knocked down by Wilder, if he ended up somehow getting up and, and knocking down Wilder, it would, it would have been that level of shock. Um, yeah, no, so- I- exactly. Yeah. I, I think that was what was spectacular about it was that Ruiz nearly ended the fight immediately after, you know, give that 10 more seconds. And that doesn't make it to the seventh round. That fight ends in the third round. You know, like, I was watching a fight last night. We're going to get super obscure, uh, a WBA featherweight title fight from 96 between young Sue Choi and Orlando Soto. And in, I believe, the third round of that fight, Choi gets floored really hard twice. But by the end of the round, he's desperately hurting Soto. And But he, he doesn't score a knockdown in that round. So... Again, I think that this was very much an outlier in terms of boxing. You know, I, there aren't too many instances that are that are quite like that. Completely agree. So it, it looked like that first, the first time Ruiz knocked down Joshua, he landed a punch either behind Joshua's ear or near his ear, almost like Temple shot that just kind of took everything out of Joshua. He was never the same after that. Um, my question is. You know, a lot of people are saying now that Joshua had a shaky chin. We've seen him get wobbled before. But does he have a shaky chin or is it a temple shot? Anyone can get hit with a temple shot and kind of lose their, their the wits about them um, for a few rounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also if we're talking about shaky chins, like who in the heavyweight division near the top has an iron chin? You know, like if you look at the top 10, all of those guys have either been floored hard, buzzed seriously, knocked out completely, you know, that, that's just heavyweight boxing. And also, he got up from all four knockdowns. So, you know, being susceptible to being knocked down, I think, is different than being chinny, where kind of at any point you can get completely flattened. You know, Joshua perhaps could have fought on after, after the seventh round. I'm not saying it wasn't the, uh, the correct decision to end that fight. It, it most certainly was. But he, he, this is a guy who can take these shots and, and either continue or at least recover from them and get back to his feet. So I, I, I don't know. I, I also, I, I hate putting labels like that on fighters because it's, it, it, you start going down 
this road of just demeaning these guys who are obviously spectacular athletes and who are obviously spectacularly tough and anyone can be knocked out. And I, and you know, when you, when you use the term chinny with someone, it kind of denotes that they're fragile in some way. And I think that Anthony Joshua is anything but fragile. No, absolutely not. So on that seventh round, um, Ruiz knocks him down a couple of times. The first time in that, in that round, I believe it was Joshua got up and kind of smiled at Ruiz. I don't know if that meant, you know, uh, what he was trying to say there. I mean, there's been speculation that he had a concussion at that point. Then uh, he's knocked down again, and the ref asks him if he's okay. He says yes, but the referee did not like his body language. There's been talk about was it an early stoppage, was it not? What do you, what do you make of the stoppage of that fight? I mean, I most certainly do not think it was an early stoppage. I mean, if anything, Joshua got extra time to contemplate what he was doing, and Michael Griffin took extra time to make sure that he was making the correct decision on – a stage of this magnitude. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, Michael Griffin is, I consider a a wonderful referee. I've had some great discussions with him about the philosophies of of officiating. And I've always known him to be someone who errs on, on on the side of the safety of fighters. And so I, I I really, but at the same time, I, I think has been fair in other instances where people have criticized him for giving guys too much of a chance. So I, I think that he is a, a, a very, very good perceptive referee. And I agree with the stoppage. Um, going back to what you said about the, the smile after uh, that third knockdown, that, that again points to what I was talking about in terms of Joshua's behavior, just being odd the whole night. You know, he just looked, you know, too relaxed for the moment. And whatever that reason was, you know, you're getting knocked down the third time. You're still smiling even after the fight and, and the sportsmanship that he showed, you know, is uh, commendable. And, and really, what are you going to say that could be negative about that? That's, that's how we want athletes to behave, uh, even though you shouldn't fault them for being angry either. But even after he loses the biggest fight of his life, you know, one of the biggest upsets in recent memory He's still smiling and hugging his opponents and, and seems okay with everything. So I, I don't know. It, it just, there are a lot of arrows towards bizarre behavior on Joshua's part throughout the night. It's, it's a tough line for him that he has to tell because he, as soon as the referee stops it, he says, what? And you see him, that's his kind of his protest. But a few moments later, he has a big smile on his face and he's congratulating uh, Ruiz. So it's actually, it's a tough situation for him because in, in one hand, if he's arguing, uh, then he looks like a poor sport, but if he's not, and he is, you know, congratulating Ruiz and has a big smile on his face, people are maybe questioning his toughness, how badly he wants to be there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a tough situation for him when, when yeah. you look at, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, like we, there was an interview with Joshua. I, I forget what it was, but it, it was sometime recently, but someone pointed out that Joshua, after the Klitschko fight, said something to the, to the degree of, I don't want to be in a fight like that anymore. You know, and people are kind of pointing to that as, you know, a possible indication that Joshua doesn't have the heart to be in boxing. But if, if that were the case, he wouldn't have got off the, off the canvas uh, all four times. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that that's fair. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist either, but what I can tell from you know studying Anthony Joshua and, and watching him throughout the years is that he does seem like a man who is very comfortable with himself. 
and he seemed to be very comfortable with his life as well. And a lot of people are, you know, using these lines like, Oh, you made a lot of money. You know, you sleep in silk pajamas. How can you get up and do road work in the morning? You know, that kind of thing. I don't even think it's necessarily that, but Joshua seems pretty content with the life that he has. He's, I to my knowledge, he still lives in a room at, at his mom's house. You know, he posted a video of this apartment that he was renting and it's kind of like, something most of us could afford, you know, with like the, the couch is torn up. But it, it does not look like a place befitting of a heavyweight champion. So he just seems like a guy who's, who's fairly content. So that seems to fall in line with his behavior afterwards being like, all right, well, I lost this fight, but in the grand scheme of things, everything is pretty okay for me right now. Absolutely. Joshua saying that after the Klitschko fight is, is vastly different than, for example, uh, Victor Ortiz saying, I don't deserve to be getting hit like this after a Marcos Maidana fight. They're, they're, yeah, they're, right. very, they're very different things. So when you look at this fight and, you know, we've had a few days to digest and, and take it in, where do you rank it historically in terms of the biggest upsets? I think as soon as the fight ended, uh, we looked at each other and I think we said Tyson Douglas, question mark. Um, you know, where do you rank this in terms of the biggest fights in boxing, the biggest uh, upsets in boxing? Uh, what is your take? Well, I, I don't know that it necessarily ranks with some of the biggest upsets because, you know, there are a lot of fights that go on. There, there have been 200 years of fights, and there are fights every week. And sometimes guys pull really wild upsets, you know, you know, last minute opponents on undercards and whatnot, where the odds might be greater than they were in this case. You know, Ruiz closed that as an 11 to one underdog, which is big, but it's not 42 to one in terms of Buster Douglas, or uh, I can't remember what the odds would have been for like, you know, Jim Braddock against Max Bear. But I think in terms of when you consider the stage, I think that it was one of the more shocking moments in recent boxing history. I think that's how I would categorize it because I don't think it's quite Douglas Tyson, certainly not qualitatively because we, we know the differential in, in the odds there. And we also know the difference in terms of Tyson's mystique and Anthony Joshua's mystique heading into each fight. Um, so I, I don't know necessarily where I would rank it because I think that that, can be more accurately assessed by actually looking at the, the betting odds. But if you consider again, the, the stage and the stakes and again, the optics of like what it looked like to see a guy who looks like Andy Ruiz knock out a guy who looks like Anthony Joshua, it was one of the more stunning moments that maybe we'll ever see in boxing. Absolutely. It's definitely in recent memory, it's, it's one of the most shocking things in not just boxing, but in sports. Just to, to, to wrap it up, looking ahead here a little bit, Joshua has triggered his rematch clause. The rematch is going to happen. We don't know where yet. Uh, Ruiz has mentioned Mexico. I'm sure Joshua would love it in the UK. Um, on the other side of the table, Wilder and Fury are set for their rematch at the beginning of, of next year. I actually think this is a good thing for boxing. I think it's a good thing for the zone. I think instead of three big players in the heavyweight division, I think there's now four and any of them fighting each other is extremely interesting. Um, what is your take about the heavyweight division now? And what would be your pick on the Joshua Ruiz rematch? I, I, I know that Joshua will be favored. And in fact, he already is favored in the, in the lines that have been opened. 
But I don't know that after what I saw and what I have seen that I could pick against Andy Ruiz in the rematch. I, I, I would pick him to do it again because it didn't seem to me, even considering all of these things that felt off about Anthony Joshua, it didn't seem to me that that was a fluke. It seemed to me that that, that was a guy with a style to thwart Anthony Joshua most of the time. Now, clearly Joshua could still punch, and maybe he lands that same shot that he lands in the third round of this past fight, and Ruiz doesn't get up. But if I'm playing the percentages, I would probably pick Ruiz. And I think you're right. I think it's great that, that suddenly there are four heavyweights out there. And I know people are upset that they, they felt that this spoiled Joshua versus Wilder. And, you know, I, I understand that mindset because, you know, you felt like you were robbed of what would have been you know, a major spectacle, getting those guys in the ring together at a particular time. But ultimately, this isn't pro wrestling. You know, we can't kind of bemoan things and say, like, it's not like, oh, you know, how did they let Brock Lesnar beat The Undertaker? It should have been someone else to beat him. That's basically what we're saying here. We saw Anthony Joshua conquered, but we wish that it were Deontay Wilder who had done it because it would have been in some way more satisfying for us. When in reality, what we're watching is a sport and we are watching people climb the ladder to be determined the best fighter in the world. And someone beat Anthony Joshua. So now there is another guy who's in that conversation who right now has, has claimed to the, to the heavyweight throne. And what we should be watching for is finding out who the best fighter is and not, you know, you can't, what you can't do is get mad at promoters for marinating and wanting to build up big fights and then get pissed off when, uh, you know, and, and start like basically being an armchair booker and hoping and wishing that it were another guy in the ring with, with Anthony Joshua. You can't, you can't have it both ways. And I, I think that we should appreciate the enormity of what just happened and appreciate the new landscape that we have. I, I completely agree. This isn't uh, Mayweather-Pacquiao taking years to come together to fight. This was uh, one guy who imposes will and shocks the world. And he looks the way he looks, like we said, with the optics. And that causes the sports world to take notice, the mainstream world to take notice. And that's definitely a good thing for boxing. Corey, thanks a lot for your time and your insight. Appreciate it. And I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Great time, man. We'll see you in a bit. If you made it this far, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show. You can find me on Twitter at at Curran Bhatia, C-U-R-R-A-N-B-H-A-T-I-A. And you can follow the podcast at our Twitter handle at A-T-E underscore podcast. A-T-E underscore podcast on Twitter. Please give us a follow, share with your friends. This is Karan Bhatia. This was the Ask the Experts podcast. We broke down Joshua Ruiz. I don't think you could break it down any more than we did. We had some great guests. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hope to hear from you again very soon. Thank you once again. My name is Karan Bhatia, and I am signing off for the Ask the Experts podcast.